Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? Welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Joining me on the show, I've got a special guest, Hawken Light. Hawken is a friend of mine. Uh, We actually used to work together at Firestone. Uh, He's worked with Identifix for a number of years, and he's currently working with Garage Gurus and doing a little bit of mobile technician work himself. Uh, He's got some training videos. He's going to be presenting at Vision. Um, Lots of knowledge in the automotive industry. Uh, so we're going to talk about all of that stuff and more and a little bit of hockey too, because we're both Minnesotans and we both play hockey. So uh, I enjoyed this talk. Hopefully you will as well. But with that out of the way, let's jump right in. There's, there's always something uh, new to learn. I actually, I think I should take like a course or something on, uh, you know, the audio pro- you know, editing and processing and stuff like that, because I've just been kind of winging it and watching some YouTube videos. What software do you podcast. do for editing? I just use Audacity because it's oh, free. Oh, sure, sure. And I, I've learned it through using, and it's pretty user-friendly. What's um, yours for that? I'm sure there's a better one out there. But, oh, they get better, but they get um, vastly more complicated. I've gotten like <laughs> three or four different what they call DAW, Digital Audio Workstation, Um copies from buying different music related stuff and holy crap the learning curve man i feel like a dummy here i can't like you know like the way that you do certain things for instance when you're doing synthesizer type stuff uh so i have a little keyboard that i can control you know to like you could play piano sounds you could play any kind of sound you want and this one particular software that i use the one that i use for recording it's like the first time I figured out how to get a specific instrument to actually work in the software, it was not at all something I figured. I'm looking through every single menu. There's no buttons. There's nothing. And finally, I go and I just click on it and drag it. And sure enough, that's what does it. I'm going, <laughs> what? Like, of all the things, that's that would have never occurred to me. It's kind of like, so uh, I feel like a dummy. But the first time I got my Top Don scanner and I wanted to know how to go back I had no idea how to get back from one screen because there's no physical button and there's no arrow (laughs) on the screen. So then you figure out, you swipe from the right of the screen and then it goes back. Or like, you know, figuring out how to do the, uh, the video or the screenshots or any of that stuff you drag from the top down. And I was like, I didn't know uh-huh. any of that stuff at the beginning. And I, you know, I hadn't used launch in a long time. And I'm sure maybe it's the same on the launch stuff, but I was just like feeling like a dummy because I couldn't figure any of it out. And then oh, one yeah. day I did it by accident. I'm like, hey, what, what the hell is that arrow on the right side of the screen? <laughs> Whoops. Oh, hey, look what that did. So now I know. Yeah. But- it's funny when you do something by accident with a device, whether it's your phone or whatever, and you're like, how did, how did I do that? What did I do? And then you got to look it up and you're like, or, or you watch a video, you know, somebody will post a video. Here's how you do this on your, on your phone or whatever. I'm like, what? Like I could have been, you know, making something more convenient or moving a, something from somewhere so easily that's built in. And I had, I had no, no clue. Um, a few years back, the uh, search bar in the hotel and the launch for data pids, like, 
I did not, I didn't comprehend that that was there and how useful it was. Right. Like you just hit the search and then say, I want to, I want to see data pins about a, a cooling fan. I just type in fan. Oh, they're, they're all right there. And if you're working on a Ford and it's got 500 data pins, oh, yeah. that's, that saves you a couple minutes of scrolling through data pins. Right. And, and you can miss I, it I too when it, you do that. <laughs> oh, oh, hundred percent as you're scrolling through. And so it just is like, when I, when I realized that that was just there and, you know, I'm sure it was there for many years while I was using those tools, but Kudos to it's funny when you it. discover something like that. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. I think the first time I used it was in Y tech, um, where it has a pretty clear search bar and it will arrange the data pids once you punch them in there, depending on what you're looking for. But that it's on these aftermarket tools as well. And it's, it makes your life so much simpler finding that stuff or, well, okay. How about this? I think I mentioned this on the show before, just control F with a computer, oh, yeah. huge, right? Huge. So huge. I can't tell you how much time that saves me looking through inf- service information. Volkswagen wiring right? diagrams <laughs> or Audi. Okay. okay. Uh, Cause when you download it yeah. from Irwin, if you get the diagram for uh, any any vehicle from Irwin, it can be like 2,000 pages because it contains every possible version of the wiring for every single vehicle through more than a one-year span. So like it's a, I would call it a platform manual. So it would be like, hey, you know, this, this particular Passat was made from 06 to 2010 or whatever it might be. So that wiring manual is for all those years. And it's also for every level of equipment for all those years, for every system for all those years. So then like, you know, you're sitting there looking through it and you're like, okay, I'm trying to find a component. And then you figure out what the component is called. And then you go to search for it and you're like, oh my God, there's like 150 instances of that (laughs) particular component in the wiring diagram. So literally you do control F and then you're just sitting there hitting the return button until you see the one you want. And you're like, oh, this is going to take a while. So people never understood just how tedious finding the right wiring could be for those systems. I mean, oh my Lord. But the control F really, really, really helped. I mean, Boy, that's that's a tool. I mean, service information as a whole, that's such a valuable tool. It makes everything so much better. For sure. Um, a lot of times I use it when I'm going through uh, the power distribution wiring diagrams on like the redrawn stuff. And if, if you do an identifix, you, you open the tab and it will, in, in Word format, it will list out all the components that are in that diagram. And then, so let's say you have eight power distribution diagrams and you're looking for, you know, fuse 32, you just pull those up, control F, fuse 32, highlights them all. I love that. And then you can open that diagram. And so just doing that saves you so much time. Um, When I'm looking up GM RPO codes, use the repair link shop. Oh yeah, yep. Hugely helpful. Pull up the VIN attributes and then you just control F and put in your RPO code. You know, if it on, has it immediately you know, that you're looking for. Yeah. And if it comes up, you, you got it. That, that saves me so, so much time. Oh, oh yeah. Um, Hugely helpful. If it's a truck, I know where the sticker is for the RPOs, but some of the cars, I don't even bother like searching through the trunk or anything like that. I just punch the VIN in and uh, makes that makes sense. Like it's a little stuff like that, that really, Huge time saver, huge time saver. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that too, because, you know, so I'm going to do just a free Euro 101 type of class that I'm going to do just through Facebook again, like I did the last one that I did uh, on Identifix, and I'm going to record it, so it'll be on the YouTube channel and whatever, but um, 
the one of the things I want to cover is kind of along those same lines. You know, how do you find and identify the vehicle and figure out what it is that you've got in front of you? Because, you know, Volkswagen Audi has a similar thing to RPO codes. They call them PR codes, um, production codes, I'm, I'm sure is what it stands for. But um, they have a sticker just like that. And, you know, it can be in where the spare tire is. It can be any multiple places on the vehicle. But uh, there is a site called PartsLink24 that you can subscribe to that you can jump on that website and type in the VIN and it'll give you all of the production codes. In a, in a similar thing, like it's kind of like RepairLink. Uh, now you have to pay for the site, unlike RepairLink, which kind of sucks, but um, it is, it's pretty cheap. I think it's you know like 20 bucks a month or whatever. So if you do enough, and it does a lot of euros, so they've got like Volkswagen Audi, they got BMW, they got Land Rover, they got Jaguar, they got Volvo. And I mean, they have great parts diagrams, like it's dealer level parts diagrams. So it's, you know, in those situations where maybe the repair information sucks, you can look on the, the parts diagram and I've found way clearer pictures in there sometimes when I was trying to explain where something was to somebody when I was at Identifix, I was like, well, here, I'll just get you a parts diagram. You'll be able to tell where it is then. And then you can look at the parts diagram while you're looking at the car and it'll be much more obvious where it is. And um, also just the identification, you know, it made it so much clearer. It does Porsche too, which is nice. But uh, then you'd mm. be able, when you had those production codes, then you could go and look in the wiring diagram and find the correct wiring diagram because you also needed to know the build date of the vehicle because that's how they split out the wiring on VW Audi is by build date, not by model year. So, of course, more complicated. Okay. And they do tell you the build date in rep- in the PartsLink 24, which is, again, hugely, hugely helpful. But, you know, it's it, just being able to identify what it is that you have in front of you is so crucial because... You're working at a huge yeah. disadvantage if you're not even sure what you're looking at, right? I mean, is this right, an N54, right. an N55 BMW? Is this uh and if you don't, you know, you don't work on them every day, you're not going to open the hood and go, yep, I know exactly what that is. I mean, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. You look at a thousand cars, you're never going to remember every one of them. <laughs> yeah, especially the ones you're not familiar with and you don't know the the lingo, the codes and all that stuff. And yeah, that's, that's me for Euro. Like, um, I it's a learning process every time I hop onto one and I've got to try to learn that stuff as I go. Um, so you've done a lot of European work. Is that when you were at Identifix, was that your primary focus was the Euro So stuff? typically that was what I got tapped to do. So working there was kind of a interesting journey overall. So I started there mostly doing support. So I did training people on the website. I did product support. I did, you know, retrieving information nobody could find, things like that, training people how to use the website. And then as I was there longer, then they started to let me take hotline calls. And for the most part, it was initially just European. And then I started to get to do some Ford stuff as well um, as the, in the later time when I was there. So um, European was mostly what I did. And I typically stuck to VW, Audi, and some BMW. Um, didn't usually take calls on anything else. Uh, I haven't done a ton of work on Jaguar Land Rover. Um, I mean, they're not they don't bother me or it's not confusing. Usually they're pretty straightforward. They have a thousand codes and <laughs> they're predictably bad. So, um, <laughs> but you know, like, but most of the stuff that I typically spent time talking to people about was usually BMW, Volkswagen, Audi. And I had some really, really helpful people, including someone you had on the show, Adam Ward, uh, teach me a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, that I didn't know when I came there. Um, you know, he made me a lot better as a technician on a lot of different stuff for diagnostics, explain things really well. He's very, very smart and can explain 
almost like an engineering level understanding of anything. Uh, it probably is an engineering level of understanding on a lot of stuff, but he'll explain it in terms that make logical sense that you don't need to have an engineering degree to get, and he can make it so it makes sense. And he also distills it down into rules, like, you know, voltage drop rules. He was always really good at reminding us, hey, you know, voltage drop limits, 100 millivolts on, you know, computer-controlled circuits, 250 millivolts on anything else except a battery cable and, you know, stuff like that. So just just reminding you of the really fundamental rules that you need to keep in mind and also, you know, explaining how applicable they were to a given case you were dealing with. So there was the, the thing about Identifix that was great for a long time was when we worked in a physical building, we sat in a long row and I sat with the European team most of the time I was there. And I spent most of my time collaborating and talking with some specifically really knowledgeable people. Um, they had one guy there, Jim Newkirk, who he I think he mentioned, Adam also mentioned. Um, but he's been there for like almost, I don't know, 30 years or 25 years, something insanely long. And he also used to teach classes for WorldPack. He also just an encyclopedic knowledge of Volkswagen, Audi, and just, you know, encyclopedic knowledge, period, uh, about cars. But both of them spent a lot of time helping me learn things and mentoring and giving me information. And I only got much smarter at diagnostics probably when I started there up until now is where the the majority of my knowledge on diagnostics has grown. Uh, when I started there, I was much, very limited on what I was good at for diagnostics. And they spent time training me and teaching me. And I did a lot of self-study and a lot of uh, self-education to get better. And that's what I continue to do now. I still watch Lots of training. I try to go to as much training as I can. Um, I collaborate. I spend all the time in the Facebook groups reading people's case studies and learning from them. Um, I've gotten smarter thanks to the community and also thanks to the people that have been willing to take the time and teach me things that I didn't know. So, I Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, prior to uh, Identifix, we worked together at Firestone. We did. Or I don't remember exactly how long that I was. I was the dick service manager, right? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> no, no, I, we uh, we had a good uh, good vibe going at, uh, was that the Blaine? Mm-hmm. The Blaine Firestone, yeah. Um, I, uh, that, was the, that was when I started at Firestone because I had been at an independent store prior to that. Or, I mean, my whole career prior to that. And then I started at Firestone. That was my introduction to flat rate actually i'd never been oh really before rate. that never okay before, no i had been i'd been hourly and um you know there's there's a lot of you know negative stuff you could say about firestone tires plus but going from where i was at a little two bay shop being hourly to being flat rate i doubled my income that first year that i was at firestone <laughs> that's good <laughs> so I, as, as, you know, a young tech, I thought that was pretty cool. I, I was like, okay, this is the, this is the place to be. I can make some money. And I did, I made, made a lot of money there, but yeah. Um, how, uh, how long did you work for Identifix once you went there? About five years total. So I was actually back there okay. three different times. <laughs> they called me the boomerang. I kept coming back. So, <laughs> but, but the company, you know, the company appreciated my skill set and that I was good at doing a lot of things. So they would have me, you know, again, I was able to work in multiple departments all the time because I was so easily trainable and I could pick up things quickly. So they'd teach me a new thing and they go, here, we need help in this area. I even did dispatch sometimes when they were shorthanded because I could do 
whatever they needed me to do. Um, so like the utility infielder, you know, or, uh, like some of those few, very few hockey players who can play forward and defense like, uh, Mark Pissick <laughs> on, I think he's on the Sabres now, but yeah, you know, it's, I, I've, well, and I mean, even for hockey, you know, I can skate as a goalie or I can skate as a defenseman and I'm probably pretty close to this point. I'm close to the same as far as level, you know, it used to be much higher as a goalie and lower as a skater, but being in much better physical shape now, it's pretty close to even at this point. Um, but, but, you know, the, just the trainability that I had there, they always kept bringing me back because they saw value. And, um, one of the things I also worked when I worked there, I did the Bosch technical hotline for them as well. So I took a lot of calls on Bosch parts. So, you know, I talked to a lot mm. of European shops. In fact, uh, there's at least one European shop that I recognized right out of the gate when I joined the Facebook group for European technicians, I recognized the name of one of the guys who's an owner. And I was like, Hey, I talked to him on the Bosch hotline and I remembered his name and he had called me specifically about uh, spark plug indexing because there was a TSB specifically from Mercedes that was talking about you had to index the plug specifically uh, so that when it was torqued to the proper spec, the uh, the uh, open part of the spark plug, you know, not where the strap is, but the open part would face towards the injector um, so that it would properly mm. ignite the on the GDI vehicles that it would properly ignite the uh, the charge. And it was interesting because Mercedes, when they first released it, I remember it was like, you know, it was a big bulletin. We, we all had it, whatever. And they redacted it. It disappeared from... So Mercedes has a really bad habit of redacting bulletins and other information. And I don't know, you know, I've, I've noticed that in some of the other manufacturers out there, things seem to disappear suspiciously. Uh-huh. Ones that where you're like, hey, wait a minute, I know I saw a bulletin on this subject and now it just seems to be gone. And it's definitely a thing. Yeah. It, it happens for sure. And one of the things that it illustrated was the value of having more than one information source. So Identifix, and I'm presuming it's probably the same with all data, when they do informational uploads, if you will, to the website, so whether we're talking about Ford service manuals or we're talking about Volkswagen service manuals or whatever, when they go in and do that and they do a batch upload, they're just pulling all the information from the factory site database one time, that time, when it happens. Now, occasionally they also go back and do a refresh, but Ford is a real good example where if you look at the bottom of the, I don't know if it's the bottom or the top, I think it's the top right corner of the manual page, it'll say the publication date. And that is really, Hmm. really important because there are times where you have access to the factory Ford information. So test it out sometime. When you go in to look at something for Ford, especially a specification, pull up Identifix, look at the, the page publication date, and then go into the factory site and pull up the publication date. I bet you at least 50% of the time the procedure has been updated or revised. And Mm. this is the other thing that people don't understand and realize that is a huge, huge risk about putting all your eggs in an aftermarket service information basket. Um, It's it's risky because there are procedures that are written wrong right out of the gate. You got to understand that people who are technical writers who write technical manuals, most of them are not technicians and have never touched a car. They make mistakes. Now, they're human, so everyone makes mistakes, but they're also lacking mechanical experience in most respects. And that's deeply disturbing because they are telling you how to do the repair. (laughs) And uh, Mm -hmm. in reality, uh, that may not be the the best way to do it. And that's one of the reasons why flat rate technicians are so impressive because they find ways to do things more effectively. And 
they just have to figure it out on their own on the fly. Whereas some desk jockey sits back there and writes a procedure and, you know, they do a good job for the most part. But when you think about some of the shortcuts that really smart technicians find, it's like, well, you know, that's a reason why the book times, why you can beat the clock. Because if the people writing the technical manuals were flat rate guys and they went out and looked at the physical car and then wrote the manual, they'd figure out the shortcuts right out of the gate and the times would be much worse. So uh, let's hear it for yeah. that not happening, right? Well, yes, that was always the thing as a flat rate tech is you didn't really want to give away the uh, secret. <laughs> put out there the shortcut. Yeah, if you could make that six hour power steering pump a hour and a half because you knew a trick you could kind of sneak that thing out this way you, you didn't want to just go broadcast that because i mean i probably more likely at a dealership but even in the aftermarket world maybe they switch up that labor time and uh then you're then you're doing it for an hour and a half but yeah it's uh that was that was the name of the game is trying to find that for for repair anyways um because our diagnostic was like a flat fee, but for the repair side of things, <laughs> well, not, not every time. I mean, you'd have some where it was simple. Right? Hey, I found a oh, bad relay or a bad fuse. <laughs> One hour. Well, yeah, it was like a lean, lean code and a vacuum hose is loose or something. <laughs> okay. Some, something, you know, you'll get those, but then you'll get the opposite too, where it's hours of messing around. But the, the, the name of the game was always to try to figure out a way to do it quicker than book time and sometimes you can do that just fine through tools or skills or whatever but then obviously a lot of people are going to find shortcuts that are you're skipping things you're not doing certain things and that's where it becomes that's where flat rate can cause problems give an incentive <laughs> yeah to, to to cut corners and to not necessarily do as quality of work or skip certain things um there's just that that carrot there that motivates you to try to make as many hours as possible but not necessarily do everything 100 percent. you know to to the letter okay well do i really need to do this last step that's going to take me another 15 minutes you know that's that sort of attitude is definitely prevalent that's that's the trouble with the flat rate pay system um, and uh, I think it's, I think it's becoming more and more widely known and, and hopefully there's a shift, but I know, you know, places like Firestone Tires Plus, that's still the way that they pay to this day. Um, and I go in there and these guys don't want, they don't want to do the diagnostic work cause it doesn't pay. Yeah. You don't make they'd any money do that. Well, yeah, I mean, they'd rather do the, they're not equipped the, very well to begin with. So to that point, actually, I had a conversation with a service manager at a Firestone actually just this last week you know I go out and I visit tons of shops for the garage gurus role that I do and I you know I talk to a ton of shops so I promote training uh, I talk to them and I do support for all of the formerly federal mogul and Tenneco brands so basically you know if there's product issues or whatnot they communicate those things to me and then I have meetings with engineers and product managers to discuss resolutions or you know figure out what the root cause is and things of that nature so I do that support but I also do training promotion and in talking to the service manager he was mentioning to me that now all the BSRO stores don't have Identifix and they're like so that takes away our ability to diagnose cars because you know, Identifix, of course, we know is a double-edged sword, right? If it's used correctly, mm -hmm. it's a wonderful tool. If it's used incorrectly, it's a brutal crutch. 
it can cause people to just shotgun parts. And I, I've been to shops that do it both ways. So it's, uh, it's mm-hmm. definitely, I understand why it's, why maybe someone at the upper levels who doesn't understand what the day to day work is like thinks it's all bad. Um, so they took it away. All the BSROs don't have it now. And then that was t- 2017 that they took yeah, that away. Wh- I, I, that was when I was leaving Firestone. <laughs> they, they axed Identifix. Yeah. And then, so then the service manager told me that he said they're, uh, they have Mitchell, which I, I'm not trying to throw shade at anyone specifically. So I, I think all three information systems have their place and have some value. So for instance, one value I think Mitchell has above the others. Mitchell is better at bulletins than anybody else. They have all mm. of those old bulletins that have been redacted from everybody else. Uh, they have stuff that nobody else has in terms of bulletins. If you ever look for a TSB, just literally type in the TSB number if you know it or the you know the code and the vehicle and then type in Mitchell. And 50% of the time, you will find it on Mitchell nowhere else. Um, so Mitchell seems to have a lot of that stuff that no one else has. They're almost more archivists in that sense. Um, but the other thing that they don't have is they have, you know, they don't have OE wiring diagrams typically. Um, they have the heavily processed and redrawn diagrams, which, you know, they can be nice, but they can also be extremely inaccurate. So it's really crucial you have mm-hmm. more than one source. But the, the BSRO manager was telling me that they have Mitchell and then they have a limited version of all data. Now, I'm not sure exactly what he meant by that, mm. but he said he felt that it wasn't the full version. And in that way, he said he feels extremely handicapped and handcuffed uh, when trying to do diagnostics, he's like, you know, I just, there's so many vehicles where we're looking for information and we can't seem to get accurate information we need. And I'm going, oof, man, that's tough. And, and I mean, you know, that yeah. they don't have a reputation as a company for investing in tooling for diagnostics. You know, I mean, <laughs> I think you said something about an old OTC or something, whatnot, that I remember one of those scanners. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember having yeah. that at the Blaine location. And uh, uh-huh. quite frankly, most of the stores that I've been into now don't seem to be any better. Um, but I went to another, it wasn't BSRO, but another corporate chain store uh, just actually yesterday to help them because they had a Land Rover that they had apparently had for two weeks and had not been able to figure out. And they don't even have a scope. Well, at least they, they don't know. If they have a scope, they don't know they have a scope, but they don't think they have a yeah. scope. Now, someone said, well, right. th- they don't have a snap-on that has a scope on it. And I said, well, I didn't ask, but they told me they didn't have a scope. And so it, it needs the, the, the cam and the crank synced, uh, synchronized uh, waveform capture to be able to verify that it's out of time, which it most likely is. But they, they didn't have any way to verify that. And they're dealing with an aftermarket warranty company on the vehicle. And they're going, oh, crap, we need help, blah, blah. So, you know, I, I I was there for garage gurus and they asked me if I'd be willing to help them out. And I said, sure, I'll come back out and look at it. I don't care, whatever. Um, but it was, uh, but just hearing them say, you know, they didn't have a scope. And then I don't think they had any scan tool that was Eurocentric at all. Um, and they had two Land Rovers in there, which was just like, oh my Lord, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> uh, it just, yeah, it, the, the, you don't know what you don't know is really what kills you, regardless of what level you're at, uh, which is the reason for, you should always be training. You should always be watching YouTube videos from quality people. You should always be trying to get better because you don't know what you don't know. And that's really what's going to trip you up and kill you. You don't, maybe you don't know how a system operates on a vehicle and you make an assumption. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Right. I mean, it just, I've made the mistake of doing things like that in the past and boy, has it burned me. You know, it's. <laughs> oh, sure. I, uh, I do that on a regular basis. So I know, I know what you're talking about there. It happens. Um, <laughs> 
tell me tell me about Garage Gurus. Um, I've definitely seen them. I saw their they had a big setup at ASTE, and I've heard about them. Oh, explain to me and the listeners what what they do and what you do for them. So uh, basically, they are the training and support wing of what is the company is called Drive. So it mer- it was a merging of Tenneco and Federal Mogul. Tenneco being like Walker and Monroe. Um, Federal Mogul being Moog, Felpro, and a Champion and a bunch of other brands. So you can look it up and see what all brands they have. But they have a ton of brands. And um, Garage Gurus does training and support. So we do basically support for the product. So we go out and we talk to shops in person and collect feedback from them on the products to determine if there's issues with stuff. If a shop has an idea for a new product for a specific vehicle, you know, kind of like around the Moog problem solver mentality, um, you know, but with any product we make really. So if you have a solution idea for a gasket or whatever it might be, you know, we had some feedback from gasket sets. People were saying, you know, Hey, there's stretch bolts in a lot more situations. Now it'd be great if Felpro offered stretch bolt kits. So that's one of the ideas we've collected from shops in the field that we are trying to bring to fruition. So then we have, uh, you know, meetings with the product managers and, uh, the engineers and discuss ideas that we get from the field to try and create new products or to resolve issues with existing products or anything in between. So we do that. Uh, that's one of the functions we serve, but then we also do training. So I go to shops and perform a variety of trainings. For the most part, the trainings that I get to do are largely more around fundamentals. So brakes, steering, suspension, um, gasket, sealing technology. Uh, we did have a DVOM class that we did as well. Um, and then there's also, then we have higher tiers of training classes, more like the stuff that you would see from like World Pack or ATG or any of the other ones. And those are the ones where we'll fly in either a master trainer. So like at the show you saw, we had two or three of the master trainers there that would do the uh, the big deep classes that are three, four or five hours long, whatever it might be, or <clears> eight <throat> hours. Um, the ones I do are an hour. So I do the shorter, quick and dirty ones. They do the deeper ones. Um and then, you know, the uh, the master trainers, we get information and feedback from the field. In addition, while we're doing our regular support job, we also get feedback regarding training. So we talk to shops and say, hey, do you want to see a class in your area on a given subject? So we promote training. And if we get, you know, 10 shops in the area that say, hey, we want to go to a hybrid class. Well, then we'll go and we'll talk to their vendors and we'll say, hey, these 10 shops that all buy from you really want to see a hybrid class and we can help make that happen. Um depending on, you know, what kind of climate it is, you know, temperature-wise outside, we have a 53-foot mobile training center that can be brought out to a specific area. So it was in Wausau, Wisconsin um, last year, sometime in the summer, and they did, I think, two or three days of hybrid training there. Um, So basically, you know, if we get a lot of interest, and that's great for the, the markets that are not a huge metro area, right? So if you're in a city of some decent size, but you're not in a huge city, or you're pretty far away from a huge city, and, you know, it's not feasible for your shop to drive four, five, eight hours, or you just don't want to. If you get enough shops in a given area, you know, St. Cloud would be another good example. They're, they're, they're not that far away from the city, so they probably do still drive in for some training. But if you're, you know, let's say Fargo. Fargo would be a great example. They're not going to get major trainings yeah. there. But if there's a lot of shops, there's a big amount of population in Fargo. Fergus Falls isn't that far away. So if we get, went up to Fargo and Fargo said, hey, you know, there's everyone wants a hybrid training class, we could bring the 53-foot mobile training center there to Fargo, and then there would be a classroom, mm. and they would do, a, you know, however many days of training people book. And that's kind of a nice thing because 
I think it expands the availability of in-person training to a lot of markets that would never see it otherwise, or the quality yeah. that they would see would be limited to none. Um, and I think that's really nice because it's really important that people do get in-person training. I, I'm not saying that I don't appreciate the online stuff because the online stuff is great. It's it's the the portfolio or options you have now by comparison to three, four years ago is great. I mean, you can see a, almost any subject you want virtually, but there is still something you lose when you do virtual versus in-person. Now, some people don't don't do well with sitting at a desk and watching a computer screen. There's lots of people who have said that to me, and I get it. I understand. Um, but there's also, like you've talked about, the networking aspect of going to classes. You meet other technicians, especially people in your own area, which is really cool because then, you know, you get to know and do some networking and you can talk to them and maybe you're both fighting an interesting car and you can talk with each other and it, it feels more connected, right? So it's it's kind of a cool feature mm-hmm. to have that. But also the relationships with the instructors. Some of the instructors are tremendously approachable and and just delightful to talk to and you don't get to really do that on a webinar the same way. I mean, I, I've been to a ton of webinars, and there's some of it, but it's definitely more limited than the the value you get in person. Um, you know, it's I saw that Thornton is teaching only at uh, the major conferences from what I've seen so far, and then uh, mm-hmm. one scope class down in Chicago a couple of days. He released his training schedule for 2022, and everything else is virtual. And, you know, he does a great job with the virtual, probably – one of the best out there as far as the virtual stuff goes, but he's an unbelievable human being to meet in person and talk to and so great in a class. And it just sucks to not see him in person. You know, it just, when you've been to his classes in person, it's just, you lose something by not going in person. (laughs) I I was definitely a little bummed to see that. Not that I'll watch those videos that he has. I will too. (laughs) And it's nice that you can, you can make that purchase and you, you can watch it six months later that is good for back to it and you, you get the pdf but yeah i was, I was bummed that there's not going to be that in-person one that comes up this way because i don't know we we do have training around here but not a not a ton of in-person training even prior to covid no. it was it was limited around here so it was nice that that was there but i don't know um that's that's definitely cool what uh garage gurus is doing what's your ultimate goal do you uh, are you aspiring to be one of those full-time trainers where you're presenting the big classes and traveling around? Or? You know, it's tough to say. Um, I'm not real sure where I'm going with it right now. I like what I'm doing. It's uh, on a day-to-day basis. It's I get a lot of latitude. So which shops I visit, I can kind of ch- pick and choose where I go. Um, you know, I tend to go to the shops that give me the most positive reception. So they're friendly and they talk to me and they give me good feedback and they're honest. Those are the shops that I spend the majority of my time visiting. Um, you know, when I go, the majority of the shops that I spend the time in between nine and three is the time when it's good to visit shops. Anything before or after that tends to get dicey because earlier than nine, they're checking in cars. After three, they're trying to get cars out. So I try to be sensitive to that. So typically my day is, you know, I do some driving around and I do some administrative stuff on the computer and whatnot at the butt ends of the day, beginning and end. And then, you know, I'm out between nine and three for the most part. And sometimes it goes a little later or earlier, depending on if a shop is really chatty or maybe they got not a lot going on. Or if I run into an issue, then I might end up staying at a shop. I stayed at one shop for four hours because they had an issue with a strut and we were troubleshooting it and verifying, okay, yep, it's the strut. And then I did a bunch of research to determine, oh, well, we have a super session on this one. And it looks like your vendor didn't give you the new product. And, you know, so there's, it's a very highly variable amount of time I spend in a given shop. So 
I like it. And, you know, the relationship building is really nice. Um, a lot of the master trainers, you know, they go to big shows and they do trainings and they get booked to go to various markets and do classes and whatnot. But when they're not actively at a class, they spend, they work from a home office. And, you know, I've had that experience before. Um, Identifix actually switched all of their people to virtual completely, 100%, closed the physical office uh, the way I understood it. And a lot of people really felt like they lost something. And, you know, I left just a little bit before that happened. And I got to be honest with you, I was doing a lot of remote before I left and it's boring. Like you don't get the human interaction, even if you're in a team of people and you do a Zoom meeting or whatever, it's just not the same. And I like right. the aspect of my job right now where I go out and I visit who, who I want to for the most part. And I have conversations with different people every day and you never know, you know, like I could go to 10 shops in a day and seven of them barely say anything. You know, we just have a 10 minute chat, 15 minute chat or something, but then I'll get to one and they'll be really interested in talking and they'll talk for three hours and it'll be mm -hmm. super productive and super in interesting. And we might talk about any subject. It might not, I mean, we're usually automotive related, but they can go off on a tangent and whatever. And it's about building relationships. So it's, uh, I enjoy that part of it because it is interesting and you meet a lot of interesting people. And I've met tons of people across the whole Metro and also all across the state really. And it's it, that part of the relationship building is good. And it's also interesting because you get a real good beat on what's going on in the industry uh, that I would not have if I didn't do this job. Um, so definitely mm -hmm. that part of it, you know, the travel is a little tough sometimes. I, I'm not, it, it, weather is usually the only thing that really makes the travel suck <laughs> if it mm -hmm. snows, yeah. you know, um, outside of that, right. but, but you get the latitude with the position, right? So if there's a blizzard outside, I can just not do visits that day and do office stuff that I need to do and catch up on, you know, training stuff and whatever other stuff I might have. So that latitude to be flexible like that is really helpful in the position because they understand, you know, weather is not something you can control. They're very sensitive and tolerant of that. Um, the company treats you very, very well and treats you like a professional. They, they know you're going to do your job. And as long as you do your job, they leave you alone. And that's, I've never been treated with more respect from an organization than I am right now. And that's a tremendously difficult thing to find in any job. But frankly, very specifically in this field, as you probably can agree, um, just being treated like, hey, you know what you're doing. You know you're going to do your job. We let you do your job. We give you objectives and goals. And as long as you're working towards those, we leave you alone. And that kind of autonomy mm -hmm. is just so amazing. And I, I, I greatly appreciate it. So I don't know. I'm not sure if I would try to go higher for the, the training role. It depends. You know, um, some of them do some pretty cool stuff. There's one guy that we have that's a master trainer. I get to sit in on all of the, the digital virtual trainings that they create and uh, help them with the content and help them enhance them and things like, you know, what I've been hearing from the field or experiences I've had personally that I think we should put into the class. And one of the guys, he did a... Uh, they were just doing a circuit where they were showing all of our ASE test prep uh, virtual trainings. And they'll do like webinars on test prep for a specific ASE subject. And they are, they're really good. Like they teach you how to take the test more effectively, which is really nice. And I'll be honest, I even had to take some ASE tests and some of the classes I sat through actually made the test easier. And I was like, well, that's kind of strange. I passed them before, but taking them again was easier after the class. So that was kind of cool. But he did a one of the trainers, he upped the ante just tremendously. He did a presentation and he had like three or four cameras all at different angles and depths. And so he was doing breaks as his subject and he controlled the whole thing from a little digital board at his desk. 
and he like changed the camera angles. He must have had a display monitor showing what his video feed was. And he was sure. able to coordinate and do this entire thing by himself with no production assistant or anything. And I kind of felt wow. bad for the other trainers because I was like, uh, I think he just upped the ante like a ton and made it like, <laughs> hey, mic drop. I, I just made it better than anyone else can do it. And I'm going, yeah, right. he did. And I mean, the production value on the training was tremendous, just phenomenal. But, you know, they're they're doing stuff like that. And so that was something where it, I think that was a, one of that particular trainer really took the ball and ran with it and decided to up the ante and, you know, really took whatever challenge he was given by his manager to make the content as good as you can make it. Because again, we talk about the value of the virtual training and, you know, how good is it? If it's one camera angle and it's just one dude standing at the hood of a vehicle, and I won't mention names, but I, you know, there's some specific webinars out there that I've seen where it, it's static, you know, the, the camera's one thing, nothing moves, nothing happens, etc. I think that's one of the reasons why people love like Super Mario Diagnostics, right? Because he takes you mm -hmm. with him while he's doing the entire thing. And you get to experience it like you're sitting in the car next to him. And I think there's there's a value in that that really is people appreciate. It's not boring. It's not one-dimensional. It's not it doesn't have that cold, you know, pre-scripted feel. And even if he does do editing or some scripting or whatever, it's not evident in any way to me at least. Or it's, you know, it's subtle enough that it's it doesn't corrupt the content quality. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see video traction, like, on his channel. Because it's just authentic. And it's good quality, yeah. you know? <clears throat> and I think that the more that we could get that out of digital and virtual training stuff, the more people are going to maybe be willing to watch it and appreciate it more, I think. Um, that's just, that that would be my take on it, you know, from my uh, my 10,000 foot view auditing classes, but also taking a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Some of the, the creativeness that's gone into the YouTube videos and the recording of, you know, a process for diagnostic or repair or whatever is definitely, it, it's impressive how far it's come in the last 10 years, uh, you know, compared to when I was a tech and, a young tech, there really wasn't anything like that. You could go to training courses in person and that was it. You didn't have much <laughs> options beyond that. And now there is a lot of stuff. If you're willing to go seek it, you can find incredible information and it, yeah, incredible people that are, like you say, being very authentic in what they're presenting. Uh, you know, Ivan from Pine Hollow, um, his stuff is is fantastic because he's just he's showing you exactly what he's going through. And, you know, sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes it's not quite sure what's going on. And then, you know, eventually gets to the solution and it's very real. Um, Paul Danner's stuff is very similar oh, yeah. to that. I mean, he'll, he'll put up stuff where he just straight up messes something up or <laughs> straight up misses something. He's not afraid to put that up there. No, his videos that's are real awesome. Life. Yeah. He's, he's extremely it's, authentic. I love his videos. They're just great. That. That's how it really goes for people. It does, yeah. You know, you you're gonna miss stuff. You're gonna mess stuff up. This is a challenging thing to do, and nobody does it a hundred percent all the time. You know, if that's being presented, you know, you, you're you're hiding something behind the scenes. So I think that's the, the like you say, being authentic will draw more people in um, for when you're presenting information or training or you know. A YouTube video, whatever it might be. You could win AFV uh, if you had some of the shit recorded, right? <laughs> I know one yeah, specific there's... one that I did that I could have recorded that would have been great. It was on a Subaru. 
And it was actually my father-in-law's car, and uh, it had a VVT fault. And I actually used an Identifix archive and did all the tests from the archive and found the fault really quickly, thanks to the archive. So I, I really appreciated that. It saved me a ton of time. I didn't have to spend a bunch of time learning and trying to figure out how does this system work, blah, blah, whatever. I figured it out using their archive, and it was really helpful. Figured it out, fixed it. Put the new oil pressure switch in. Everything was back to normal, but of course, there's a bunch of oil all over the side of the engine. Well, my genius idea was to spray off all of that oil, and I was living in an apartment at the time, with degreaser. Well, I didn't pick something like Simple Green that's not flammable. I picked like the CRC stuff that's super flammable. And I sprayed it, and of course there's oil near the exhaust manifold, and the vapors from the, the cleaner just ignited. And of course, you know, the, there's a flame like right there, and I'm going... Oh shit, oh shit. And I'm going, <laughs> put it out, what do I do? And I had a giant 32 ounce Gatorade. Yep, the 32 ounce Gatorade put that fire out. But I was just like, <laughs> oh man, I can't believe I did that. Just, you know, not thinking at all. And of course, uh-huh. you know, I got the fire out and nothing was damaged, thankfully. But it was a moment where I go, man, if I had been recording that, people would have got a lot of laughs. Oh man. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll give you one. This was a few months ago I did this. So it was pretty recent. Um, I was doing some electrical testing for a shop and I don't even remember what the original problem was, but I was going to jump B plus to a circuit in order to test something. A very simple test. I do this a lot. And I'm confident that I'm safe to jump B plus to this circuit because I understand the diagram and I know what I'm doing. Okay. (laughs) Except for I jump it to the wrong circuit, right color wire, but wrong circuit. So there was two of the same color on this connector. Well, as it turns out, I jump power to the signal wire of the ambient temperature sensor. Okay. Now this sensor lives up in the front of the grill of the Silverado and it has a ground on the other side through the computer. Well, when you do that, when you send straight B+, plus, where there's only supposed to be a 5-volt reference going to this thing, you send straight B+, plus to this ambient temp sensor, this thing will, it will pop, it'll bang like a firecracker oh, really? in the front of the vehicle, <laughs> because the thermistor element actually became a load in that circuit, got so hot, and it's encased in a little plastic oh, housing, yeah. <laughs> that, that plastic housing built up a bunch of pressure and burst and it, we, we were so surprised i was so surprised i'm like what the hell was that you know because it's like bang in the front of the truck when i did this and um we you know i figured out what i did and i was like oh okay that's right. awesome so i bought him a new sensor no hey no at least it wasn't the computer the, right <laughs> right right that's the what i would have freaked out the computer was good oh man i would have freaked out so Anyways, um, yeah, there's there's definitely some mishaps and some comical stuff that can happen out there. <laughs> well, I made a mistake the other day. I was uh, actually diagnosing, so it was a four-wheel drive issue on a Dodge, uh, 2019 as a matter of fact. And uh, so it had a fault code, and I tried like three different scanners on it. And I, you know, I had access to the gateway and all that mumbo-jumbo. And the fault codes were indecipherable. It was some nonsense. It was like these sequence of three two-digit codes all in a stack. And I'm like, that's nonsense. What the hell is that? Every, every, well, okay, let's be honest. All three scanners I put on it were, uh, were okay, uh, launch-based times two and an autel, and all of them gave the same nonsensical fault code that doesn't exist. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. So I'm like, well, we know what the symptom is. Four-wheel drive doesn't function. Okay. 
So where do we go from here? So I was like, my natural instinct is I like to use the scope. That's my favorite thing to do, well, especially when I don't have a fault code. I'm going, okay. So I'm looking at the wiring diagram. I'm going, okay, everything goes to the drivetrain control module. It's up in the kick panel. I can back pin everything there and figure out what's going on. So I, you know, looked at it and I'm going, you can hear like a noise, something's moving down underneath. And I'm like, I'm not sure if that's the front actuator thing or if it's the the transfer case motor, which one of them is moving and making that noise. But the noise was not, didn't seem like it was happy because you could press, you were sitting there in two wheel high. So this vehicle had two wheel high, four wheel auto, four high and four low. And you could try to go into auto or into high and neither of them would complete the shift completely. It would try, and you'd hear the noise, and then it wouldn't complete the shift, and it would start flashing. So I'm going, okay, well, something's pissed off, and it's not working. So let's see if the signals are reading, if it's because it has hall sensors to determine where the transfer case motor is and whatnot. So I'm like, well, I'll scope the sensors, make sure the signals are actually there, and I'll make sure I'll amp clamp the, the motor wires to see if it's actually showing like, hey, it's hitting a mechanical resistance or something. And, you know, look at that. So I did that first and I look at the transfer case motor. The signals look normal. You know, I, the hall sensors were changing positions and everything. It, I could see that something was physically happening and it didn't look like it was like going and then going back or anything like that, which is what I was hearing happening was something was trying and then not making it and then going back. Um, so then I looked at and I clamped the motor and, you know, the amperage waveform looked good. You know, it spiked up at the initial and then it went and stabilized and it showed that the motor was moving and I felt like everything looked okay. And it had two wires and it had different waveforms on both. And I looked at both and both seemed okay to me based on what I could tell was happening. And so then I went to the front actuator and the front actuator on these is under the oil filter area. So it is extremely prone to getting soaked with oil just when people do an oil change. Um, and mm. so this particular actuator was, the way it was designed is it's a it's a spring-loaded fork. So it's got a big, long fork and a shaft, and then it's got a spring on it. And I have pictures I can send you to if you want to post them for this, if just out of curiosity. But um, So the, the spring makes it return back to its position, which is released, so two-wheel drive mode. And then it has a little tiny motor with a really small gear. And this gear has got to be... I only know because we cut the old one apart after I diagnosed it as faulty, but the gear on it is just tiny and it has three other gears inside. So like a planetary style setup almost. And it's, okay. it goes inside in the center of that. And then it cranks that those other gears and moves the fork to lock it into four wheel drive essentially. So that motor doesn't have to, you know, it, it doesn't have to move ultra fast or anything like that. It's just slowly spinning to move it. So I scoped that and looked at it and I looked at, so it has a control circuit and it has a signal circuit, which basically is the feedback, so it can see if the motor actually moved the, the fork. So I looked at the feedback circuit and watched that, and I looked at the control, and I go, okay, the control's there. It's trying to move it. And I looked at the feedback, and I'm going, mm-mm, it's not moving. <laughs> it's, not, it's not moving. It's not getting to where it's trying to go. Uh, that's clearly what the problem is. And for the life of me, I stupidly didn't save that waveform because, of course, you know, you're doing it and you're excited because you found the fault. And then you didn't save uh, the waveform, okay. dummy. I saved the amperage waveforms for the transfer case. So I'll, I'll share those with you and you can save those as known good because they're good. Um, but anyway, the, uh, yeah, the waveform was like goofy and it, it looked like you could see it was stopping and not making it all the way. It just wasn't moving. And so when we took it off, we could see that it had actually wicked oil inside the connector had the 
the tab facing up towards the oil filter. So what we think happened was oil had dripped down onto it either when the oil filter was taken off for an oil change or when it was if it was loose or whatever it might be, and it had gotten inside where that tab was and gotten inside the connector. So found mm. it saturated with oil. Took the old one off. I got a bunch of pictures of it and whatever. We cut it open because I was like, I want to see what the inside of this looks like. And sure enough, you know, I tried to bench test it as well before anything else. And yeah, it wouldn't move. You could hear it click and then nothing. It wouldn't move at all. And I'm going, okay, it's seized. It definitely doesn't move. Um, so then after cutting it open, you could see it was saturated with oil inside. The circuit board was completely bathed in oil and everything was junk. And it was interesting because the transfer case control motor was actually much cheaper. Uh, th this this younger, so it was actually, I did a favor for a shop. It's uh, one of their younger guys who's uh, learning to do the management side in the front shop. And he does some mechanical stuff, but he's not real knowledgeable or anything. And so it was his truck and he had asked me to look at it. I was like, sure, I'll look at it. And he had actually preemptively bought all of the possible parts he thought it was. Cause he was like, I just want to have the parts so I can throw it in whenever we figure out what it is. And he goes, the transfer case motor itself was cheaper than this actuator. And I go, but the complicated level of construction doesn't make sense there. I think he said the transfer case motor was like 160 and that's got hall sensors in it and a motor and all this other mumbo jumbo. And this actuator is literally just a fork and a little tiny motor with a gear on it and one feedback sensor. And I'm going, and that was $260. Now that's shop cost. But I was just blown away that the transfer case motor was that much cheaper. And, and he said, you know, he had even read that that actuator in the front was like a known failure part. And I'm going, normally that makes the price lower, not higher. <laughs> but mm. for whatever goofy reason, yeah, that's what it was. So anyway, he f took care of it, it fixed it. Um, and it was an interesting case because, you know, not having a fault code to go off of, it, you're, you know, you have to really figure out how the system is supposed to work. And actually, the case yeah. that you shared quite some time back about the transfer case on the Ford was helpful because I was thinking about, you know, mm. how they operated it and how you described that. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember Sean's case on that. And it helped me construct a theory of operation. And Dodge had some description, which was somewhat helpful. But um, gotcha. having another case study, there you go again. So listening to and observing and talking to other people who have diagnosed issues on other vehicles. And I think people sometimes get hung up on it has to be the same make and model and whatever. And I think that's the thing I've discovered the more I do diagnostics in person as opposed to on the phone um, is that you learn more and more that it's about figuring out how the system is supposed to work and not getting hung up mm -hmm. on what the specific fault code is. So that's the Land Rover that I looked at yesterday, I think is a great example of that as well. The shop that was looking at, now they don't have a scope, but they had the faults in the system were all, all the cylinders had misfire faults. And the only other two fault codes I had in the ECM were low pressure fuel, not meeting the target, and low pressure when cranking, not meeting the target. And on this particular Land Rover, it's a five liter engine, and it's the same as the Coyote on the Ford, right? So it's mm. the, the high pressure pump is driven off the intake camshaft, if I'm not mistaken, and they like to jump time. And when they jump time, well, we have a lack of high pressure fuel. So I basically, mm. I didn't have, I didn't even scope it yet. I'm going to go back out and scope it for him. But I looked at the live data. You know, I turned the vehicle on, started it up, 
looked at the low or the high pressure rail and the high pressure rail is reading like 40 to 60 psi and i'm going we have zero high pressure fuel here um it sound the cadence sounded off to me when it cranked up now it did actually start reasonably quickly which i was kind of surprised by but the cadence i heard it sounded a little bit off and i'm like ooh, i think that's timing now i was lazy and didn't also bother to capture relative compression also because when i went to look it up on identifix the Specific vehicle I put in didn't have service information, so I was like, oh, great. I can't tell which... I don't have a wiring diagram from the factory, and I can't identify the fuses easily, and I just said, you know what? I got another shop to go to. I'm not monkeying around with this. I'll do research, and I'll come back, so... Um, but... Gotcha. Nonetheless, it was... You know, it's, it's a timing-related issue, and because this shop does not have the fundamental understanding of how the system works that that intake camshaft is responsible for driving that high-pressure fuel pump, they were not Mm. able to infer that, hey, the reason why I have misfires and I have a fuel pressure fault but no timing fault, well, okay, we know that misfires in some situations, or at least, you know, from experience, I've learned that when it flags a misfire, sometimes a lot of other codes won't come on. They physically won't trip. And it seems to be in Euroland especially. There's a lot of... The ECM engineering on Euros is really stupid in a lot of senses because codes that you go, well, if it's blank, it has to have this code. Oh, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Don't ever get yourself hung up on that. Like you, it, it could have, you know, a great example would be uh, Mini Cooper. You know, it could have an intake air mass plausibility fault. And that might be the only fault it has. And it could literally be timing. And, and you just, I feel like in a lot of respects, European is almost like, you think about the ASE tests. European cars mm-hmm. are the real life ASE test because they're really challenging on challenging you on do you really know how this engine works? Do you really understand all of the foundational knowledge on okay what what actually can cause this fault and not just what is the code setting criteria but what is theoretically could physically cause this fault and I think that's really mm-hmm. the part that makes it hard to work on them sometimes is. Guys get hung up on, well, if it's timing, it would have to have a, a timing code. Or if it's not timing, it has to be this or whatever. You know, you, you get hung up on the sure. fault codes and, oh, man, that is yeah. a dangerous game. I've, I've, I've done that a few times and I've got hung up on the fault codes and it has served me poorly. And, you know, I think yep. the other thing, a lot of the Euro engines now are so just terrible. <laughs> not not to be depressing, <laughs> but they're really sensitive. So, like, one of the one of the things that... So two things, I guess I should say, that the Euro manufacturers, several of them have released TSBs on, is when you perform any major mechanical engine repair, they want you to prime the oil system. And they literally tell you, disable fuel injection, both BMW and Volkswagen Audi have TSBs on this. You do a timing chain repair, you do the cylinder head off, any major mechanical repair, you should disable fuel injection, and you should crank it over for 10 seconds, stop, let it rest for 20 and then repeat the process three times to rebuild oil pressure and make sure that oil's flowing nicely through the entire engine before you start the engine up and run it again. And that's literally a TSB for two different European manufacturers. And no coincidence, both of those European manufacturers are pr- getting pretty well known for jump timing chains on a, a number of vehicle applications. And on Volkswagen Audi, at a minimum, we used to get calls at Identifix where they would literally jump time in the bay, in the possession of the shop. They would come in with a timing mm. fault, and they'd be looking at the vehicle, and then they'd call us, and they'd say, blah, 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 and we'd give them some tests and whatever, and they would start it up, and it would jump time while they were in the process of diagnosing a timing fault. And I'm going, man, like, you get any of those vehicles with a timing fault, 
scope it immediately and shut it off. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't mm, don't screw around. I mean, they are. We're talking about at least the EA Triple Eight platform, which is the one eights and the two liters, starting in about two thousand and eight <laughs> or two thousand and nine for VW Audi. Any one eight or two zero okay. after that, you should. If you see timing faults, don't let. The, I mean, if you're a shop, tell the customer don't drive it because it's it will jump time. It's not if, it's when. And we're dealing with like. BMW N20 motors, which is a little tiny, I want to say two liter engine. I always get a little, you know, trying to remember exactly which engine is, but they jump timing all the time. Um, I'm pretty sure they've still had the issue on the B series motors, which is what the generation that came after the N series motors. Um, I think they're still having timing issues with those two. I can't speak to that for sure because didn't take a lot of calls on the B series before I left. They kind of came after that, but um, but most of the timing chain motors on at least BMW and Volkswagen Audi are, and Mini, of course, because they're BMW, but I would be concerned about releasing that vehicle ever if it has any timing faults, and you get a customer that comes in or calls you and says there's anything, any rattly kind of noise coming from the engine, shut it off, tow it, don't drive it, <laughs> that's, that's sure. bye-bye engine, <laughs> so it's... <laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, you know, it's... It, it's just most of it I think stems from bad maintenance. I think a lot of people don't do their intervals like they should. I think, uh, you know, f- well, or they follow them as the manufacturer. Right. Yeah. 10,000 miles. Cases are too long. <laughs> no, 10,000 miles. Yeah. No good. Well, and, that, and that's, so that's yeah. the conversation that you have to have with so many customers now is, you know, uh, 5,000 miles is the maximum. I would go on any vehicle at this point, regardless of make model, anything 5,000 maximum mm-hmm. and make sure you're using yep. OE compliant oil. Make sure you're using a high-quality oil filter. Um, you know, Bob is the oil guy is a great site where he's cut open hundreds of oil filters and taken pictures of the internals. And he does research to kind of figure out, you know, what's a good quality filter. And I like the research because it gives you some validation for whether or not you are legitimately using a premium oil filter as opposed to something that's labeled premium but doesn't really stand up to that label. Um, you know, and I think that's really important. And more and more vehicles now, no different on GM, Ford, they're all getting far more sensitive to lack of maintenance, poor maintenance, incorrect oil quality used. The Lubrizol site that they talked about, I took a World Pack class on that. It was, you know, just like an hour seminar or whatnot, but Lubrizol has a website where they have spider charts where they show you what is the physical oil oil characteristics for a given OEM, so Dexos 2, what is the spider chart? And the spider chart literally encompasses everything you can think about that would really talk about, you know, the characteristics of an oil. Uh, you know, anti, anti-wear anti properties, heat dissipation, you name it. Any characteristic you can think of, the Lubrizol chart shows you. And it's a really good tool to illustrate, number one, if you're a diagnostic technician, why an engine might have failed if you find out, oh, this customer took their car to Valvoline all the time, or they took it to a chain shop that maybe uses synthetic blend when the vehicle requires full synthetic, and not just any full synthetic, but a Dexos 2, or you know a 503, or a 504 Volkswagen compliant oil, or whatever it might be. But they show you the spider chart for whatever given spec, and you can see all the characteristics it requires. Then you can look up like an A3, or a B3, or whatever other just API spec, any given random regular spec that you would find on an oil bottle, and you can see just what meets that. And the specs for those characteristics, like A3, B4, whatever those, way, way, way less stringent than an OEM. And that's why we literally had people would call on the hotline, they go, oh, well, this BMW had Pennzoil full synthetic platinum. And we go, yeah, the Euro blend? And they're like, no, 
you know, it just had 530 in it or whatever. And, you know, we'd have to show them the spider chart and explain to them, well, that doesn't meet the requirements for BMW long life oil. It's not, not even close. And that's the reason mm -hmm. why you see, you saw a timing chain failure or whatnot, because the physical oil properties flat out don't stand up to what the manufacturer has set forth as a requirement. And I mean, that's, people keep making the wrong decisions and we're going to never run out of work. That's, I mean, without a doubt the, People will continue to do that. And I think that's something for our field that I think would be beneficial is, you know, I, I, I talked to the city of Isanti about trying to do a community education class um, just to educate owners on some of the real fundamental stuff like that. Like, hey, you need to be aware that oil is not just oil anymore. You need to be aware that changing it at your manufacturer's stated interval is really not advisable in a lot of cases. Using an automatic oil life monitor is an extremely risky business and quite frankly, not, not in your best interest as a consumer. Um, you know, it's, it's done for EPA related reasons. It's the same reason why, why does a misfire fault disable a bunch of other codes from tripping, right? Because they're trying to protect mm -hmm. the catalyst literally at any cost, any cost. Mm -hmm. And you're going, yep. whoa, 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 time out. So the engine might blow up because we have a timing code <laughs> that you didn't know isn't setting. But, well, the catalyst will be okay, though. That's fine, right? And you go, oh, whoa, whoa, no, that's terrible engineering. And I think that's really the part that we need to, as a, as a community, as a, as a whole culture, we need to find ways to educate consumers more. And shops do it sometimes. You know, really good quality shops will spend time teaching their customers about their vehicles and educating them on the, the pitfalls and the benefits of, you know, doing specific maintenance and not doing specific maintenance. And I think... Uh, it's really something that we need as a as a totality of our field need to find ways to make more inroads with consumers. We need to teach them more about their cars because customers argue less with you when they understand what's going on. They're more willing to spend the money when they understand, hey, this isn't just some guy trying to sell me something. You know, it, mm -hmm. so much of that I think is that helps build trust, education and teaching people more about their vehicles just out of the own goodness of of the industry is something that we can do to try and help. And so I'm hoping that maybe I can get a community education class going for something like that. I've been trying to make it happen and we'll see if it happens, but I think it's, it's something that stands to benefit literally every shop. So I, I feel like, you know, if there's other people out there who want to get something like that going, you know, feel free, talk to me, reach out. If I have any success, I'd be happy to share. Uh, you know, I haven't built the class yet, but when I do, I do plan to make it available fully. So if someone else wants to teach it in their jurisdiction to other people and modify it and, you know, make it more their own, whatever, I don't care. I just think it's something that I think we could really do to help ourselves as an industry. You know, and again, it, it builds integrity too, because if we're just educating, nobody has any suspicion that we're just trying to sell them something, right? You go into a class, you don't charge them a lot of money to take it. It's about teaching them how to take care of their car and how to be responsible. I'm not saying that doesn't exist out there right now, but every one of them that I've been to was garbage and not trying to be mean, but every one of them was just not very good. Um, the people who taught it were, were usually not people who should be teaching classes. And I, I don't like to be judgmental if I can avoid it, but it's, it's the reality. We need people who will teach the classes who are passionate who have energy, who have, you know, confidence and also who are motivated to make the industry better. And that's, that's really what we need, you know? So something that I think we can do as an, as a whole field to try and make our own lives better, but also other people's. Yeah. 
Well, that's the that's the service writer in you. Uh, I uh, actively avoid dealing with the general <laughs> public as much as possible. Um, I I've come to really enjoy just dealing with the shop uh, and and technicians and the people that yeah, like you say, no, no, at least the at least somewhat of what's going on with the vehicle and the technical things. And uh, I I never I never did enjoy the the general public side of things that's why i like the car i like the it doesn't talk technician back role. <laughs> yeah right right and so i you know i've had individuals call me and get my number one way or another oh, dear. to do the mobile thing and i <laughs> just like nah just bring it to a shop i just work with shops and that's actually made my life a lot easier but i i totally get where you're where you're coming from there and it would be good you know for just general education on this stuff it Owning a car is, 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 there's a lot to it, especially if you're going to make a purchase on like a newer vehicle, you're spending a lot of money yeah. on it. You're, um, I, I try to not use the word investment because a car is rarely an investment, nope. but if you're going to spend <laughs> that kind of money on a vehicle, you want to at least protect what you've spent the money on. And, uh, there's, yeah, there's a lot that goes into well, it. Cars are um, a liability and a risk and maintenance yeah. <laughs> and repair is mitigation of risk. It's it's funny. Uh-huh. I have a friend who's a shop owner who talked to me about that, and he was talking about he's he's kind of shifted the way that they approach customers in talking about more about the the customer interaction or the sales process becoming more about risk mitigation. So risk tolerance, you know, talking to the customer about okay, so what do you feel is what is your level of risk tolerance, right? And and so much of that now, you know, he he was talking about one of the things that he can do for customers is he can do risk mitigation through the PicoScope. So he's like, well, you can look at an electric fuel pump and see where with with a waveform. You can physically detect where with a waveform. If you look at enough pumps, you learn to recognize what is a worn out pump. What is a pump that is probably likely to fail in the nearer future rather than long term? I mean, it's a, it's a fact. You can see it. Electric motors can you can see where with a with a scope. So he was talking about you know one of the services he's offering customers is risk mitigation. Hey. We, we can do a full health analysis of your, your, your vehicle, and we can even look at things like the fuel pump health. And that's something that could leave you stranded on the side of the road. We can do a cam and a crank capture to make sure that there's not significant timing chain stretch. You know, all of these things that can be risk mitigating. And a lot of customers, when they look at it that way, as opposed to, you know, hey, you're just trying to sell me something. If you look at it more of a service and assisting someone in mitigating risk, I think that's a really constructive way to look at it because that is exactly what it is, right? Not doing your maintenance, well, that's increasing your risk. Not doing repairs that a cust- that a shop recommends that are legitimately needed, that is increasing risk. You got a loose ball joint, you say no to replacing it, well, you hit the next pothole and it might be you're on the side of the road stranded. It's all about risk mitigation. And it's it's an interesting perspective that no one had really ever pitched to me before but he brought that up to me and i said oh that's an interesting thought i never looked at it that way so yeah definitely that's uh something to consider <laughs> looking to add some work i know i'll tell you what though i know the shops around here <laughs> that, that i'm going to they wouldn't even have time to consider nope. something like that <laughs> everywhere is so busy oh, yeah. with repair work right they now are destroyed. i was talking to a shop owner the other day and he's like we keep calling people with you know a two thousand dollar repair bill to do you know timing chains or transmission or whatever yep. and everybody says yes do it, do it, do and it. they're like 
um, we're two weeks out, and we were actually hoping this person would say <laughs> no to this. Or, or later, like a month later or something, right? Yeah, I'm going to wait six yeah. months. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's a good problem to have, but yeah, everywhere is just slammed with work right now. So good, good for technicians that are still in this. That's the other thing is every shop I go to is struggling to find techs to do the work that they're selling. Um, but the work is there right now. So if you're, if you're in this industry, you can definitely make some money at the moment, oh, which yeah. is uh, definitely a good thing. You can leverage a um, hell of a salary compared to before. I, yeah. I'm not going to lie, even in the course of my, my normal garage guru's visits, I've been propositioned more times than I can shake a stick at. And I'm like, oh, sure. you know, I've yeah. never been Ever. a dynamite parts hanger. Uh, I'm slow. I'll do it right, but I won't do it fast. <laughs> uh, I'm much better at the diagnostic stuff and much more efficient at that. And I also like it a lot more, so I won't lie to you there. But uh, but I do get propositioned pretty regularly, and I'm just like, oh, Lord, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. I understand, man. I know you need people, and I'm so sorry that I can't help you there. You know, and of course they bother me like they bother the tool guy. Also, I get calls. Hey, you know any techs in the area looking for a job? Yeah. I'm like, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't uh, know any, unfortunately. They all seem pretty happy because I think most of the shops that have a brain right now are, are taking care of the people they have and not alienating uh-huh. them because boy, unless that technician's a hell of a liability, you'd be stupid to let them go right now. <sighs> Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Same thing with the students. Um, and they, you know, a lot of the shops I go to know that I teach, and they're like, Hey, you got any students? And I'm like, <laughs> You, if you want the students, uh, and this is just because it's the way it is right now, you're going to have to come down to the school in their first year, bring them lunch, give them a presentation right there in order to beat out the other shops that are already doing that. Like, yeah. It's, it's competitive right now. Just asking me randomly, Hey, do you got a student? Like, I ain't going to do it because they're all working right now. They all have jobs in their first year. Oh, I'm sure. Right? It's a two-year program. And before they're even done with their first year, they're snatched up by a lot of dealerships because they have their recruitment money and stuff like yeah. that. But even if it's not, we have, you know, we have shops coming in talking to these, these kids trying to get them on board. So it's, it is very competitive to try to find uh, workers, technicians right now at any level. Yeah. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. Honestly, <laughs> um, <laughs> same reason I don't uh, want to own a shop. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hey, but you're doing uh, some mobile diagnostics of your own. Um, I, I think you kind of been talking a little bit about it here, but what's the what's the plan behind that? So I stick to. So I do it after hours, uh, outside of my Garage Guru hours. Um, I do some while I'm working for Garage Gurus as relationship building exercises. So those are obviously no-charge situations where I just step back and help them diagnose a car because they're struggling on it or whatever. And, uh, you know, that's relationship building to try and get them to maybe sign up for some training or whatever it might be. So, um, But then I do some that are after hours on my own on my mobile business. And um, I spend a lot of time at a, just a couple of shops. I don't go to too many. Um, ironically, the, the ones that I spend the most time at are very far away in the South Metro. So kind of sucks oh, there. Okay. I drive a long ways, but... Um, I don't do any programming right now. I do only diagnostics. Um, I spend some time kind of doing hybrid of diagnostics and teaching their technicians how to do basic tests. So like I was teaching a technician how to do a voltage drop test on a loaded circuit a week or two ago, just spent some time teaching them that. And the owner was like, Hey, I'll just, you know, pay you, I'll pay you to diagnose the car and then I'll pay you some more to teach them this. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I can do that. Or, you know, sometimes they'll have 
they'll have their guys watch me, you know, to try and learn stuff. And I try to take the time to explain what's going on in a circuit diagram and whatnot, because many of them don't understand. And I get it. You know, it's, it's something where maybe they haven't gotten training. And there's probably more people now that I've run into that have no formal education whatsoever. And I go, holy cow, that's hard. I mean, the good news is, like we talked about before, there's way more information out there about, you know, things you can learn on your own. But I think a lot of it is, you know, you could pick up a Super Mario Diagnostics video and you could learn something from it. But if you have no formal education or structure, how much you get out of the video and what you can assimilate knowledge-wise is somewhat limited. You might be able to mimic some aspects of what he's doing in the video. And, you know, like mimicking is a pretty effective way to get good at stuff in some respects, right? But eventually you have to understand the underlying meaning behind the things you're mimicking. Um, you know, mimicking is not solely effective. But uh, so I, I do spend some time teaching people about stuff like that when I'm out at shops. Um, you know, most of it, I, I find that the lat, well, lately, every car has been compound failures. So <laughs> I had a, a vehicle with an electrical problem, a Vera Cruz that was like a 2011, and it ended up having the alternator was garbage, wouldn't charge. The cable going to the alternator had a 10 volt drop. Uh, that was garbage. And the fuse block, which it had a piece on the uh, the positive battery terminal with strip fuses, was actually had high resistance, and it melted that piece. So it literally had three different failures, all electrical in nature. And this, I mean, the thing came in, and the only symptom the shop told me at the onset was it has a battery draw, and the wipers do weird stuff. And I'm like, okay. And then I find out it's an auction car later after I've already started mm. looking at it. And I'm like. Oh, God, thanks for not... I mean, it's it really isn't any different than Identifix. So Identifix, all day long, people would omit information, and you'd get yeah. three or four calls in, and then they tell you something additional. You go, oh, now I know what's uh -huh. going on. Or, oh, that explains a bunch. Oh, was that a body shop? Did you check to make sure all of the fuses are there? Oh, they're not? Oh, well, let's do something about that. So I'm, I'm discovering that in doing more and more mobile stuff that there are... So many of the issues that I run into are resolved by, I like to call it foundational rather than fundamental stuff, but foundational knowledge, you know, voltage drops, mm -hmm. uh, you know, resistance, things that are just, you should know this stuff and you got to learn and master it. It's the most important stuff to master. And that's, uh, you know, there was a comment in a thread on Facebook the other day. Uh, it was like an owner and technician kind of back and forth forum group and, Someone had asked a question about what you spend on training as a sh to the shop owners. You know, what do you spend on training? What's your budget? Blah, blah. And one of the shop owners had made a comment about, um, I don't send my technicians to, you know, the fundam fundamental electrical classes or whatever. And I said, you should. Because it doesn't matter which fundamental, quote, electrical class we're talking about, or as I prefer, foundational. I guarantee you without any doubt in my mind that they will always get better at it because I don't care how well you understand electricity. You can always get better unless your name is Albert Einstein or you are like the top physicist, like Neil deGrasse Tyson or something like that. You can always get better at it always. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't tell people, I think people should always go to electrical classes. I don't care if it's labeled fundamental or anything. Go, go to the class. I, because people look at things in different ways, right? So the way that information is presented, uh, the the examples yeah. they give, the specific practices that they do, you know, like we're going to practice doing this or whatever it might be, all of those things 
you never know which one is going to resonate more effectively with you. Every learner is different. And so maybe you've been to five electrical classes and you're still feeling like a little foggy on one specific thing. And you're like, man, I just, I feel like I got it, but I'm not really quite there. Um, I think it's really, you know, maybe, and then you go to the sixth class and you were second guessing going and suddenly the light bulb comes on, no pun intended, but the light bulb comes on and you go, wow, now I really understand that concept. But you would never have got that if you didn't go to that quote, fundamental electrical class. And I, I, I hate that word because fundamental becomes almost pejorative in a lot of senses. Um, so I like to call it foundational because if you think about the word foundation, well, what's you have a crappy foundation. What happens? Everything collapses, correct? So mm-hmm. I, I think there's so much value in that. And I, I do find that a very large number of the things that I look at from a mobile perspective end up being foundational knowledge, just things that yep. guys just fundamentally don't know. And it's, well, the, but they're not training. The fix, the fix most of the time for these electrical problems is a very, very simple, right? Mm-hmm. A missing fuse. A bad wire voltage drop in a wire, an open wire, yep. you know, connector pin fit it, oh, again, yeah. just an open circuit. The actual fix is, is very, very simple. Right. And that's why most of the time I'm just like, well, there you go. And then they fix the car within a few minutes, yeah. but it's about the knowledge to, to find that. And yeah, like you say, if you have the foundational understanding and and there's a lot more that goes into it right there's service information and tooling and there's there's a lot of other things that you need to build into it but to actually figure out what's wrong a lot of the time this stuff is it's it's very simple in the sense that it's just basic electrical it's basic ohm's law that we're using to find this stuff and it's not you know it's not the 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 magic that some people might think it is when you find a problem within a few minutes that somebody's been messing with for hours, but yeah, it's that getting that foundational stuff down is, is so, so important. So we, we do that with the students, right? We want to make sure that they are, you know, masters of that basic information and then they can take it and they can build with it from there uh, into more advanced things or specific applications, but get that basic stuff down. How does this electricity apply to everything that we work on and it's and, only going to get more. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's exactly it for sure. Which is cool. I mean, that's, it's tremendous. I, I just, it, it's great to hear. I, I'm glad that you are a teacher because I know that you appreciate and value so much of that, that perspective that is important and crucial for people to get good in this trade, to get good at what they do and to build a strong foundation. I know that with a teacher like you, that's going to happen. And it's good because we need more people like that. We need more people teaching. I actually, it's funny. One of the other guys I've played hockey with over the years is also a teacher. He teaches down in Mankato now. His name is Larry Curtis. You might have played with him before. Um, okay. Yeah. So he does. Well, he does drag racing too with uh, Mopar stuff. Uh, Curtis Performance is his. I think that's his company for like drag racing and whatever. But anyway, he's a teacher down in Mankato, and uh, he's taught at a couple other programs in the metro here, and now is down at Mankato. But um, yeah, he's, you know, super, another guy who's smart and knows a lot of stuff, 
similar type of background, but, you know, obviously he's on the performance side more so. Um, but he worked, you know, in the regular shops as well for a long time. And, you know, I know that he's got a similar perspective and appreciation for that foundational knowledge because I've asked him about, you know, trying to put together something, some kind of a meetup or whatever for all the people in Minnesota or whatnot. And he was very mm. interested in that and said it would be great to, great to see. And, uh, you probably, you might've run into one of the other guys I worked with at Identifix, Todd Erickson. He works for Matt, the flasher now. Yep. Yeah. He actually came out to, we had a little meetup. Boy, that was back in 2020, I think. Yeah. I think that was the one I missed, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it was, I think it was like right as the second lockdown was coming mm, or something yep. like that, but we did, we did it anyways. And he was there. Um, and I've, I've chatted with him on Facebook a few times, but yeah, he works for Matt. Um, smart guy. For oh sure. yeah. Todd is smart. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's cool. Going back to what you had said earlier, just getting to meet a lot of the people in the industry. Um, I, I really feel privileged to get to do that with my mobile thing. And, and even the teaching, you get to meet a lot of people from the industry. Whereas if you're just in a single shop, you, you don't always have that chance unless you're going to training events and reaching out on Facebook. Um, you're just kind of on that island and auto repair is what it is at your shop but there's so much more, there's so many different perspectives, so many smart people. Um, I, I think anybody should do some reaching out, uh, do some expanding and seeing what other, just a different perspective. Like he's, again, with the basic fundamental classes, maybe, you know, this stuff, but here's somebody else's perspective and it might be eye opening in the way that they look at something that even, know, you know, very well, like I know how to fix cars, but this guy does it a little bit differently. I did some work with a I actually did some repair work a couple summers ago with a shop owner because he was he needed some help and he was willing to pay handsomely for <laughs> some some jobs. I'm like, all right, I'll slap some parts together here for you. Extra money, yay. Way, yeah, right, right. And the way that he ran his shop was very interesting to me. Um, it was just such a different thought process when he approached certain problems than I was used to working as a tech in a shop and just a real can do attitude in the sense that I'm going to figure this out and make this happen and get whatever I need to, to make this happen. And he had such a creative approach to doing so Um, the way he would just overcome any challenge that would come into his shop, um, finding a way to make it happen. And just that perspective was like, wow, I've worked with so many people who don't have that. that <laughs> yeah. We we run up against this roadblock. Oh, we're, we're done not here. Doing this. <laughs> we're sh- we're shipping this out. Send it to the dealer. We don't do this. We don't work on those. The, you know, there's a lot of roadblocks and excuses, which maybe in some cases is the right answer. But um, he just would overcome a lot of these challenges. And it was again eye opening to me. I'm like, okay, well, this this obviously is doable. This is possible. Um, and kind of inspired me to you know, have the same attitude when I'm going towards repairs or diagnostics or whatever is there's a, there's a way to make this happen. You just got to have the right attitude and connect with the right people. Um, and it's, it's cool. Everybody should look for, you know, expanding perspectives and talking to other people and getting their perspectives. It's going to help you grow as a person and a a technician in your career too. It does. And it can be inspiring too, right? So, you know, if you're stuck in a rut or you get, I mean, let's, Let's face it, the nine to five aspect or whatever, 10 to six, whatever, however many hours you're working at a shop can be 
demoralizing and mind-numbing, and it's a, it's a load on your body in a major way. Like, there's no doubt about it. I mean, there's more and more tools now to make that easier for you, which is great. You know, electric impacts and whatever, and so many of the other electric tools have made that much better than it used to be. But it's still a very physical job and not an easy job, and you got to find something that makes it doable. And, and maybe something to motivate you to, to get you through the times when it's sucking, right? Because there is going to suck sometimes. Like, there's no doubt about it. There are jobs you're going to do, and you're going to be throwing tools and screaming and pissed off. And I've experienced that plenty of times. And, <laughs> well, I actually just experienced it recently on my own car. I did a, had to do a thermostat on my Jetta, and it was not a fun time. The car fought me the whole way and cut the crap out of my arms, as you can see on my picture a little bit here, and whatever. And it was it, it sucked. You know, it wasn't a good time. But if you're doing that every single day, all day long, you got to find something to keep yourself motivated and keep yourself stimulated because the, the nine to five part of it or whatever, however many hours is going to wear you out. And I think if I had known about training or, it, or and if it had been as prevalent as it is now, or if I had done networking or whatever other stuff, I think I would have gotten further along to where I am now earlier. I would have progressed faster. I would have become smarter faster. I would have been more capable and more competent sooner. And I would have appreciated that. I mean, I'm very grateful for where I am now, and I have many, 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 many more things to get smarter at, and I'm excited for that. But in the same token, I think, you know, having something to look forward to. You know, I thought about that the other day when I was talking to my wife. I was just saying, you know, think about when you were a kid. When you were a kid, there was always something you had to look forward to, right? There was always an activity, like you're like, okay, maybe you played sports and you really liked sports. So you're like, hey, I got a baseball game Thursday. I'm excited to play in that game. So all day long through school, you're going, ah, school sucks, school sucks, school sucks. But Thursday, I got a game and I'm excited because I get to go play in that game. And, it, and even stupid stuff like, you know, maybe you had a favorite cousin and you're going to go visit your cousin uh, three weekends from now, you had something to look forward to specifically. And I think that's one sure. of the keys for me, at least that I think has made it easier to process the daily grind of any job is finding ways to give yourself something to look forward to. Even if it's something stupid, you know, like, Hey, Fridays, I get a big Frappuccino and it's bad for me, but I get to do that on Fridays. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It could be something small, it be something big. It doesn't matter. Find ways to give yourself something to look forward to. And I think for me, training is one of those things. If I sign up for a class, like I'm going to Vision. I'm super excited to go to Vision. It's going to be unbelievably cool. There's all these people I've made relationships with through Facebook, and 95% of them I've never met in person, but it doesn't matter. I'm super excited to go because I'm going to meet all these people in person. I've already got good mm -hmm. relationships with a lot of them, and I can only imagine how much better that's going to be after meeting them in person, getting to talk to them. And and just the human element increases that. But also all of the classes. You know, there's all these great classes. I'm going to take the yeah. EEPROM class because I want to learn how to do that stuff. It's exciting. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Sure, is it something I'll do every day? Probably not. Probably something I'll do very infrequently. But it's interesting to me, and it's new knowledge that I'm interested in learning. So it's something mm -hmm. to look forward to. So, you know, while I'm doing the daily grind for the next three, four weeks, two months, whatever, I have that to look forward to. And that that's so crucial to making the daily grind digestible, you know? For sure. Oh, I totally agree. Is this your first time going to Vision? Yes, it is. Yep. I tried okay. to go several times when I worked for Identifix and they wouldn't send anybody. So 
Gotcha. Yeah, you'll love it. It's uh, I haven't been in a couple of years. I missed uh, 2020 and it was virtual last year. So I will be there. I'm excited. Awesome. Um, I, I heard uh, you might uh, be doing a presentation. Yeah, I'm going to do a – so the Tech Talks segment is a group of – I think it's six or seven different people who have various levels of experience doing instruction, creating like a 45-minute technical presentation of your own invention. So – I'm going to do one on kind of fault codes, kind of like how I was talking about earlier about how just because a fault code is there doesn't mean it's that specific. You know, you can't go, hey, I have a camshaft position sensor fault. Well, it's not necessarily the sensor itself. It could be just, it maybe it's just pointing you to the system, you know, so stuff talking about mm-hmm. that and kind of going into just the trust your symptoms, not your fault codes. You know, I think that's, gotcha. that's a really good mindset that I've had to teach myself to do more in the mobile side of things. Don't get hung up on the fault codes. Trust the symptom. What is the vehicle doing and what does it feel like it's doing? You know, that's that's so important to get used to. And so I'm going to talk about that for 45 minutes, which you know me, I can talk cool. for 45 minutes easily. So <laughs> I'm sure they'll probably have to cut me off, but I'm excited. You know, it's hosted by Matt. Uh, and of course, I'm looking forward to that. Um, by the way, if uh, if you are driving... Uh, I'm definitely driving and I think Matt is looking for a ride. So I'm trying to get him to see if he wants to ride with me and we could all ride together if you want. So I got my plane tickets already. You're flying. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, you lucky. <laughs> well, I couldn't justify it. I said, you know what? I'm going to drive. It's Kansas city. Isn't that bad. I mean, sure. Flying is probably what? 40 minutes or something crazy short. Yeah. It's like an hour in the air, but, uh, just for, cause I got to kind of sneak it in with school. Oh stuff, yeah. So. I suppose. Yeah. Well, I, the, I just don't want travel time. I don't want to watch people assault each other on a plane right now. So <laughs> there's been enough of that. I think I would much rather just drive and be in the car with one or zero people and be like, yeah, you know, we're good here. Nobody's going to assault yeah. me in the car. Maybe other people in other cars, but not in the same car. <laughs> if I had the time, I'd probably drive too. But yeah, I'm flying. So yeah, I think it's uh, nine or 10 hour drive. So it's not a short drive, but <laughs> right. I can't complain though. I'm I'm excited to go regardless. It'll be great. And I definitely will go to ASTE this next this next fall for sure. Um I'm Yeah, that forward. was a good one too. I heard it was great and I have no doubt of that and I can only hope. And uh, I don't know are you going to go to the ASOG uh, scholarship dinner? Uh at Vision I don't have plans for that. I did see something about that on Facebook. Yes, you should sign up for it. So I'll it's a charitable it. donation. Um, they mm-hmm. are giving out scholarships to go to vision with money. They're going to get from the dinner, which is cool. And, uh, you know, they're a charitable organization and whatnot. So, uh, definitely, you know, if you got a hundred bucks to spend, sign up for the ASOG scholarship, uh, dinner. It is, uh, you know, it's a great cause to, to give out scholarships like that so that more technicians can go to training like this. Maybe they don't have the money personally or professionally, uh, or maybe their shop doesn't spend, spend money on training, whatever it might be. But I think you can yeah. make a really big difference by, by doing that. And it's just, you know, hundred bucks, a hundred bucks. I mean, I, I, I can drop that. I can justify that all day long for a good cause. And, you know, it's going to be a mm-hmm. ton of people from the industry all going there and networking and hanging out and talking and it's barbecue. So who's going to complain, you know, <laughs> and it's at a brewery. Now I don't drink, but uh, I'm, I've been to that brewery. It's a really cool place. Uh, actually I've toured that brewery. It's a great place. Really cool. And the, the, the room that they're having the dinner in is amazing. Like super cool place. Like atmosphere is great. It's going to be a phenomenal experience. And so that's on the Friday of vision, uh, which I think gotcha. is the fourth, if I remember correctly. So 
Okay. Sign up and anyone else on the podcast, sign up. Great, great opportunity for networking. You should definitely come. And it's, I think it's unlimited barbecue, which, uh, oh, if you like barbecue, could probably eat <laughs> an awful lot of barbecue. And I'm reasonably confident that David is the one who chose the restaurant and they're in Kansas City. So the, the mm. barbecue should be good. I haven't had that specific okay. brand of barbecue, even though I've been to Kansas City and had some barbecue. I hadn't had that particular uh, restaurant. So I, someone who lives there has got to have the inside track for the correct the correct one to choose, right? <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd hope so. But if you were to come to Minneapolis and ask, what's the best restaurant to go to? I, <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you. I can tell you, you know, the best barbecue. Buddy, okay. Buddy Boy okay. Barbecue. It's in uh, St. Bonifacius on 7. Where the, where the heck's that? Uh, you go out 7 from, so basically you just drive west on 7. And it's like, you know, just a little, it's, so you know where, uh, oh, I'm trying to think now, Carver Park Reserve? It's kind of out by that. So, but if you just go out seven, it's like 20 minutes. So if you get off of 494 and go west on seven, it's about another 20 minutes west of 494 on seven. So it's, gotcha. it is, okay. it's okay. so good. I mean, the brisket is like amazing. We're talking like, I'm sure it's not, it's not as good as something like from Texas, but if we're talking about as good as barbecue you will ever get in Minnesota, like, come on, we had famous Dave for God's sake. That's the, the best <laughs> we've had. And yeah, I'm not saying it's right, bad, right. but by comparison, Buddy Boy blows it away. And I mean, they've got smoked chicken, they got smoked turkey, yeah. they got, you know, they have there's a lot of a, stuff. It's good. There's Dickies up in uh, the North Branch. I was so never impressed by Dickies. At. I had, uh, okay. they right. brought it in actually at one of the places I worked multiple times, and I was really not impressed. Uh, Buddy, Buddy Boy I've, makes it look. I've liked it. Yeah, Buddy Boy is a hundred times better. You try that, and you will okay. go. Oh, ho, ho, ho. All right, all right. yeah. I want to check it out. Then it's great. It's fantastic. If you ever get out in the West Metro. <laughs> so, gotcha. So, how far have you expanded your your territory now for your your mobile stuff? Are you butting up against well, Matt much, or not really? I'm I'm sure I'm down in that area, but I'm trying to contract my range. Actually, oh really? Just looking looking at my numbers and my time spent with it and I, I just need to focus on shops that are closer to me because the drive time is really the efficiency killer yeah i can imagine when i've got a lot of jobs to do and i'm trying to do it with school if i can i don't know how you do it at all with school honestly <laughs> yeah well that's a good question <laughs> um uh and i need to i need to focus in on shops that are closer to my range and then stop taking calls because you just keep getting more and more calls. I believe it. Well, the word spreads, it, right? You do a good job and they tell well, other people. Yeah, that's, that's how, that's how it's been. And then, you know, you say like button up with Matt, I know him, he, his guys, he runs, I don't know, like five or six vans and they're booked out like two weeks, especially for diagnostic work. Oh, yeah. And so there's so much work for everybody. It's not like we're stealing jobs from one another. It's just, there is that much work to do. <laughs> and so, um, I just, again, for, <clears throat> excuse me, for my time constraints, I I'm working on, I'm actually uh, going to be up in my prices this year, but I'm also constricting the range. I want to keep doing it, but it just keeps getting to a point where it's overwhelming and I can't keep up with all the, all the jobs that are coming. Oh, I believe way. it. And I mean, I'm sure it's like it, beating them off with a stick right now. <laughs> yeah. And be, being more selective of the jobs I take, basically saying no to intermittence. I'm not going to, it's not worth my time. Tanner, and Tanner Brandt gave me advice on that and said the same thing. And I was like, that is excellent advice. Also yeah, just, asking more questions before I go out and try to help. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I have for not sure, asked definitely. nearly enough questions. And then I've got to the car and gone, Oh God. 
oh dear, this is not good. (laughs) So right. Yeah. Discipline. I think that's a good thing. You know, it's uh, that's boy, oh boy. That's, that is the crux of getting better at a lot of stuff, right? Like, you know, I lost 40 pounds over the course of the pandemic and oh yeah, it's all about discipline. Learning to say no to things that are not good for you. Learning to say no <laughs> yeah. to eating more all the time, et cetera. I mean, it's, but, but everything is about discipline. So I'm sure I can only imagine that, you know, if you're trying to run this as a f- almost like a full-time business on top of school, it's like uh-huh. becoming more about efficiency and, you know, putting the, putting the effort where it can make you the most money in the least amount of time is the smartest thing you can do, right? You would like to still yeah. have free time, but you would also like That's to make silly. maximum money in the time that you commit to doing <clears> stuff. Makes lots of exactly. sense. Super yeah, logical. That balance with your free time and other things that are going on. That's that's a that's a skill into its own and saying no is a skill, but uh eh, it, just uh keep going and keep trying and we'll figure something out. Winter winter it's easier to not care as much about your free time unless you know, for hockey. <laughs> but you know, when the summer mm-hmm. gets out there, oh I man, I liked outdoors a lot and pfft, I mean, last year, yeah. I went out and bought a new bicycle, and it's pretty cool because, you know, when I travel for work, I have a giant express van, and I stick my bicycle in the back of the van. I go do my visits in whatever city I'm going to, and then I take my bike out of the van, and I go for a long bike ride. I did a bike ride in Sioux City or Sioux Falls. I don't remember which, but they have a trail that goes around the entire perimeter of the city, and it's like 16 miles or some crap like that. Oh man, okay. it, it wasn't bad until I got to like mile 14 and there was a headwind of about 20 miles an hour and this grade was like, you know, 10, 15%. I was dying. Oh, I was dying. <laughs> Great for hockey. You know, you get so much better shape sure. by doing that. But, but I like, you know, I like the outdoors. So it's, I know that that discipline for, you know, the stuff that I say yes to with the mobile stuff is, God, boy, I'm going to have to get more and more picky and choosy about that and how often I can say yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning more skills. So I, I bought the X-Prog 3 so I could do key stuff, and I'm going to get a key machine at some point. I don't know when, but, you know, it's not something okay. I plan to do with super regularity, but I'm I'm getting more tools so that I can say yes to a wider variety of things, but then, you know, again, I could limit myself where I go, what I do, etc. I was kind of thinking, you mm-hmm. know, ideally what I'd like to do is find enough stuff in, like, St. Cloud, because St. Cloud's about an hour but if I could get, you know, four or five shops to call me in that area, I could drive to St. Cloud and do four or five things and then come home. That'd be nice. Uh-huh. And also there's more money there. So, you know, there's the more likelihood that you could charge more money and get more stuff. And I don't think there's any mobile outfits in St. Cloud, to be completely honest with you. It's a big enough city, but there really isn't much going on. And, uh, you know, I've had some chats with my wife and she may start her own business for marriage and family therapy uh, potentially in the future. And St. Cloud is one of the places she's considered starting that because she said, well, it's a good enough size market. And, you know, I think I can do a good job with it and whatnot. And that'd be pretty cool if she did, but so something, something to think about, but yeah, I think the, the, the expansion of my capabilities is certainly something I'm trying to do more of. And I do have a J2534. Now I got the new topped on smart, which actually is, it's kind of like a halfway cousin to that S20 think tool. Um, so it has that okay. big, huge interface that those have, which can be used as a J2534. Um, so I think they're kind of going a similar direction as Autel, where they're going to have remote programming services uh, via provider network. So definitely something. Have you been asked to be part of the Autel provider network yet or no? Yeah, I actually have the the box. Oh, you do? I okay. just haven't, I haven't gotten it set up and gotten into that yet. Nice. It's one of those things like finding finding the time. It might actually save me time if I 
get that going because I don't have to drive anywhere to do it. But I like but it. I haven't, uh, <laughs> I haven't progressed, so that's on my it's on my long list of things to. Oh, I'm sure the list always year. gets longer. By the way, <laughs> yeah. if you're making lists and you like to keep track, Google Keep is one of the most amazing tools for that. Mm. It is so okay. good. So you can access it on your desktop computer or on your phone or tablet or whatever. And it's really nice because it's kind of like Post-it note-esque structure where you can just take a note, type out whatever you want. You can attach pictures to it. Uh, you can attach other information. And it's cloud synchronized. So like we use it for shopping lists too. So like grocery lists. When my wife's going to the grocery store, I am. Then you know we have a synchronized grocery list that we just update periodically throughout the late week. And then whenever you go to the store, you know exactly what you're getting. And as you delete it off the thing, it synchronizes. And so they can see you got what they needed or whatever. So it's a, it's a great tool, but I use it for a lot of stuff. I mean, tons of things. It's really good for like, I don't know about you, but I booked so, bookmarked so many things on my web browser that it got to the point where I have so many links, I can't even like keep track of what all I've bookmarked. And I, I never, yeah. I started so long ago that I never organized anything and I think to be able to go back and retroactively organize it would be oh, yeah. undoable. So the keep works start good. Start that stuff. Exactly. Yeah, so the, Start that stuff right away. Yes, do it right it away. It makes it so much easier. <laughs> so uh -huh. the keep is nice because then what I'll do is I'll make a Google keep and I'll make a post a posted about a specific subject. So like I play electric guitars and I have specific gear that I would like to purchase. So I just made a post that's like guitar gear want to purchase. And then I just pasted all the links on that note. So then if I want to go yeah. back and I'm like, what was that guitar thing I wanted to buy? I can search the uh -huh. database of the Google Keep and I can just search the keyword guitar. It'll pull up the note and then I can look at what I want. So it's a great way to be able to keep your stuff organized. Um, the other uh -huh. app that I would strongly recommend that I love is called Simple Mind. It is a really, okay. really cool, eh, they call it mind mapping. And it's basically like yep. you can create like a tree. And you can build different information into the tree. So I'm using it to like sketch out my diagnostic process stuff so I can define gotcha. how I want to go about specific types of diagnostics and organize things in a way that holds me accountable to, did you skip steps, dummy? <laughs> and sometimes uh -huh. I do. So I got burned yeah. on one where I skipped a step and I was like, oh, you skipped that. You shouldn't have skipped that. Bad. But if I have a workflow where I can pull it up on my tablet or whatnot and go, okay, did I do? You can ask yourself the questions. Did I do this? Did I do this? Did I do uh -huh. this? Um, and it's yep. nice because it's also got that ability to link different things together. So you can add URLs. You can add links to like your Google Drive. So if you have a document, let's say you have a GMTSV that you use all the time, you could create a mind uh -huh. map and then you could put a UR, uh, URL to the file in your Google Drive and link it to that. And then you'd be able to get to the file really quickly. So if you have like specific process-oriented documents for your business, you could do that too. Yeah. So it's a, it's a yeah. really I, good tool. I'm a big uh, paper and pen guy. And I don't <laughs> know if you can see my my list that I've got here. It's it's a whole page or like a legal pad. I don't know why. I just like the paper and pen for a lot of stuff. But I'll also utilize the notes feature within an iPhone. Oh, and yeah, I have yep. different documents that I can refer to. One of them's called things you didn't think of. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, that. Uh, 
if I if I run up against a wall, I pull this document open, and it's things like a capacitive discharge, or updating the software for your scan tool interface, or you know, th- dumb things like that that I just you I take didn't them for granted in the right? moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I pull that up sometimes. I'm like, oh, I got to try that. I, you know, if I run up against this obstacle. But the other one I do is uh, Google Docs. Mm-hmm. And so what I have is what I've been doing for the last three years or so is. I make a Google Doc for a vehicle. So let's say it's a Nissan Murano. I was literally just going to start doing this. (laughs) Yeah. And within that Nissan Murano document, I'll just break it down by year, depending on what I work on. If I do a diagnostic on it and something specific with that vehicle, maybe it's a known good. Maybe it's a fault. Maybe it's just how to find something on the vehicle. I make a note of it in that moment after I usually do at the end of the day. And so I'll just jot down or like with the scan tool interface, like the IM508 was able to program keys on this thing or the IM508 failed to program keys on this particular vehicle. And I just put it in there. And then so two years from now or stuff that I put in two years ago, I'm like scratching my head. I'm like, you know, it's so much you got to remember. I'm like, oh, there's only so much space in your brain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like one thing goes in another thing falls out. Things get displaced for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, aging doesn't help that either, but, um, I can pull that up per vehicle and, and reference, okay, here's the note that I made to help myself in the future. I'll tell you what, now that I'm starting to get a library, you know, over a few years, I bet you have some good stuff in there. So helpful. It's so helpful. Um, just to have those notes to refer to. So I suggest, you know, with the digital capabilities, like the apps that you're mentioning, or just simple things like notes on your phone, boy, is that helpful. So, so, so helpful. Everybody should be doing that on a regular basis. Build, build your own library. Don't rely on Google and Identifix and, and all that other stuff. That's great to have, yeah. but if you can start making your own and start it now. Like start it today, and then five years down the road, you're really going to thank yourself. That oh, you have that, I can imagine. So. Well, I mean, especially with the volume of stuff you do. I mean, then I mean, I also like to share that stuff. You know, in those Facebook groups, I try to anything that's of halfway decent value. I try to write up a case study on it, or I'm I'm going to make more videos. But you know, I'm not going to shoot the live stuff like Mario does. I just eh, he he does he's got it down to a science. I I can't mm-hmm. shoot it like that. What I've been thinking I'm going to do with the videos I'm going to create is I'm going to shoot just raw footage, and then I'm going to go back in and narrate it because I think it's easier to explain things after the case than during. Like I don't know how Mario is able to just narrate it while he's doing it. That's like hard to do. It's really really hard to process and construct your thoughts while you're also trying to figure out the problem simultaneously. And I'm going, this is not a dual core processor in here. This is a single core. It's only <laughs> one. I can't do two things at once very well like that. Yeah. He's, he's yeah, able got- to talk it out like and process it at the same time. And I'm like, man, that's good. I, I don't think I've I got do a- that. I've got an 8-bit processor going <laughs> up here, so Nintendo. <laughs> you got to take that information in slowly. <laughs> but Paul Danner does the same thing. You know, he's like doing the two things at once, and you're like, "How do you do that, man?" I just, oh, it's so hard to talk it out while thinking about it. Maybe someday, I'd, maybe someday, maybe it's a skill you learn or something. But I have a much easier time to shooting raw footage and then going back and then narrating it. And I, 
I prefer to do. I'm not, I'm not talking about David Attenborough net narrating, but you know, just <laughs> try to narrate it in a way that's helpful. So you can. The other thing I think is if you shoot the raw footage and then edit it down, it makes it easier because then if there's something stupid you did that doesn't, you know, that you're sitting there blabbing, it makes your video so much longer. If you screw something up or if whatever, I think that's the only reason for editing in my book for a video. I'm not trying to take out the human element of it. I want to edit it so that it's shorter, so that you can get the information you want out of it without wasting a bunch of time. You know, and obviously Paul does that too. He's got all his hilarious blooper reels and other nonsense that he shares. (laughs) I can't stop laughing whenever he shares those. And the faces he makes during some of this stuff is just priceless. Oh, his faces are great. They're so funny. And then his kid makes them into like memes and stuff. And it's just, yeah. Oh my God. The stuff his kid's been doing (laughs) has been fantastic. It's great. It adds a great element of humor. And I feel like, you know, we, we're getting a shop. You get a lot of humor, most of it highly inappropriate and what, whatnot. But, um, but I like the really just genuine goofy humor like that, where it's just, hilarious memes and faces and whatever and it's just so yeah. simple but just gut just gut busting hilarious you know it's just well, yeah. great i can't and sometimes this stuff can be dry oh yeah you know the technical stuff so if you can uh spice it up with a little bit of humor a little bit of personality it definitely for anybody maybe you're not a giant nerd about this stuff like me or you having a little bit of that is going to draw more people into yeah. being interested in this that that personal element to it it's it's big and i think that's why one of the reasons why like paul is so popular yeah um is because it's it he is exactly like he is in the videos in person i haven't got to you meet know, him in person that but i hope him. i do <laughs> um well i i guess i haven't met him in person but i've talked to him on the phone sure. and and stuff like that and had interactions with him and i mean that's he is the, that exact person he's very very genuine and that's you know that's why he's so popular within the automotive world. But. Yeah, it makes sense, right? And, and I think the more people more and more today appreciate genuine human element of a lot of stuff, you know, it just feels uh-huh. so much more authentic. And I, yep. I, I appreciate yep. it, but I think it's cool that there's also great entertainment value in what he does. It's not just educational. There's entertainment value there. And boy, if you mm-hmm. can be entertained and learn something, boy, that's, that's a dangerously that's, good combo, right? That's the magic right there for sure. <laughs> Exactly. Um, well, I guess the last thing I wanted to touch on was a little bit of hockey stuff. Um, uh, so you, you're skating again recently in the last year or so, right? You took some time off. So four years ago, I got diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Um, kind of stopped me cold in my tracks. Couldn't do anything hockey-wise or mostly exercise-wise. It got really bad. They tried to do surgery on it. It didn't fix it. Uh, then they went back and did another surgery, still didn't fix it. Um, but the second time seemed to dial it back a lot. Um, but I'm still on medication for it. So this time I went back on the medication after the, the second procedure, that was about two years ago and now it's under control and I don't have issues when I'm on the medication at all. And so I was able roughly two years ago to start playing again. So I missed a total of almost four years of hockey. Um, with a mm. small break in between, I played like nine sessions when I first tried to come back and then had to quit again. And then after that, so I missed a block of almost four straight years. And then now okay. I've been back since I want to say like September and playing three times a week, roughly. Um, it's been much easier since I lost all that weight. I'd gotten up to 253 pounds, which 
A lot of people said I didn't look that heavy, but I know I look that heavy. Um, And now I'm closer to the weight that I was in college, which I'm at about 210 now, which I'm a, okay. I've always had a larger frame. So even when I'm in good shape, I'm still 205, 210. So I'm closer to where I should be. And the biggest thing I've seen is my skating is much better. I'm way faster. I'm so much faster. Uh, like now my skating is like, I was a C2 skater when I quit playing and I could probably play B3 now because I'm actually faster and a better skater. Now, do I want to? Uh, I don't know, but <laughs> but I'm but I'm happy <laughs> yeah. because the speed is much better, and I think the biggest thing I've noticed is just performance increase in every respect. Like goalie wise, I'm faster across the crease. I move better. Uh, I don't get as tired as I did before. I'm still decent at the end of the skate, not terrible and gassed. Um, every part of it has just been greatly improved. But I can do so many more activities even beyond hockey. You know, I can go biking and take a 15, 20 mile bike ride and that's enjoyable. And I'm not dying Mm -hmm. afterwards. It's sure I'm tired, but I'm not like, Oh God, I feel like I'm going to pass out. No, I can still do stuff. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's really helped with a lot of things. It's made work easier. It's made just anytime I'm doing anything, I feel better overall being in better shape, but hockey has been so enjoyable to be back at again. It's just, you know, if you got to exercise and you should exercise, but if you have to exercise, you should do something you enjoy or the thing you hate the least. <laughs> and hockey is <laughs> so much of that because, you know, I wear a, I'll wear my Apple watch, which I'm not wearing right now, but I'll wear that or a fitness band and I'll burn a thousand to 1500 calories in a 90 minute skate. And that's, that's yeah. a ton. What, you know how much yeah, oh, work yeah. you got to do on a treadmill to burn a thousand calories? <laughs> Unless you exactly. weigh a lot, you're not burning a thousand easily. I mean, it's. I'll do exercise bike and play Xbox. And I found that that's a really good combo. It's actually, I can, I'll do, I'll play like uh, online game like Destiny 2 or Battlefront, uh, which is Star Wars themed. And I'll play that. And that's like first person shooter type stuff. And I can play that. And I could do that for about an hour on the exercise bike. And it works great because your brain isn't thinking about the biking. It's thinking about, hey, I'm trying to kill that stupid 12 year old who keeps beating me up, right? <laughs> that that's what it's all about with hockey is that it's fun obviously it, it, you don't it's not like a workout where you're just like oh my gosh when is this going to be over yeah, right. you're having a good time and you're getting really good exercise too but on top of that it is it's such a difficult sport and I'm sure every sport's like this. I, I haven't played a ton of other sports, but it's so challenging. And no matter how much time you put in, how good you get, there's always a bunch of people that are way better, extremely way better. better than you. Oh, yeah. And you could, you could do this every day and, and keep working at it every single day. And still people are going to be better at you. So it's like, it, it's almost insurmountable, but you just, can keep working on it. You're on those two, two millimeter metal blades on the ice with a stick, trying to get a two, two inch rubber puck behind, you know, uh, there's five other guys on the ice trying to stop you from getting it in the net. And, um, that, I think that's one of the biggest things that I liked about it so much. It was so challenging. Cause I never played growing up. Nope. Me I neither. Started when I was 25, 24. Oh, you started like later that, than so. I did, man. I started at 19. So I got a little bit yeah. of a leg up on you. Uh, but I played well, goalie yeah, so almost been, exclusively for the first five years. So okay, okay, and well, yeah, and I I tried goaltending once. It was <laughs> awful. It was really really bad. Um, oh, you'll be terrible so I, when you start. That's for sure. You have to be willing know, to well, suck. I was. <laughs> <laughs> it was not for me. I like the skating around part. I like moving around, and um, th- but that's the thing. Is it's just so it. it 
it's so challenging. And then you realize like, okay, well, this is beneficial to me to go out and challenge myself on a regular basis to go do something that I'm going to get my ass kicked at, you know, nine times out of 10. Yep. And then may, maybe, maybe if I keep working on it and it's only eight times out of 10 and, um, you know, sometimes you have a good night and sometimes you don't have a good night. Um, but it's, it's, it's so, so much fun and so worth uh, spending the time and the effort to do it. So if anybody is considering play in a sport, I mean, try hockey out, but go, go play a team sport. Yeah. Um, it's very objective too. Like you win or lose, yeah. you either score a goal or you don't. And it's funny. I don't know if you've seen, you know, even in myself, but others too, like character flaws will really present themselves in a sport like this, especially if somebody didn't play sports growing up. Oh, you mean like they're lazy and no, I'm not talking about you. Thankfully that's, that's, that's one, (laughs) or maybe some anger frustration issues Oh yeah, because they're not used to something objective. Like that goal is scored on you. That's it. They're not, they're not capable of accepting that they're at fault or they're flawed in some way. And so you see that come out on the ice. Oh, as a goalie, you got to accept that all the time. You have any idea how bad it was when I started at 19? I went to Victory (laughs) Memorial Ice Arena, which was notoriously one of the number one spots for like ex-college players, ex-high school players. And I showed up and I had no effing idea what I was doing. I was just like, derp, derp, I'm going to show up and try try goalie. (laughs) And I stepped into the net and just got destroyed. Like I probably gave up more goals than I made saves for a long time. It was brutal. But it didn't deter me. I just kept coming back. And I was like, man, I must be insane. I just keep coming back and getting shelled relentlessly. But all of the skaters were super grateful. I showed up every time they were always like, so excited that there was a goalie, no matter how bad you were, they were like, Oh man, we're so glad you came. We hate shooting on the board. And I'm like, yeah, well, you might not be so glad after you see me play there for a while. And I'm, (laughs) you know, I'm, I think the, the hockey has really helped me with a lot of things. It's really helped me. It, it's changed my mentality in a lot of ways, in a lot of other stuff, not hockey specifically, but it, being able to accept sucking at something that bad and then working <laughs> to get better at it and putting in yeah. the time and putting in the work. And yep. I got to be completely honest with you. I put a lot of time into goalie and getting better as far as like, uh, you know, I watched a ton, ton of NHL hockey and I've, I've literally been to one coaching session my entire life for goalie, one. Every other thing I've learned, I have learned from watching other goalies, primarily pros, and mocking and mimicking. That's it. I read some goalie mm-hmm. publications and whatever about you know save selection and learning how to read things better and whatnot, but for the most part, I'm self-taught. And all of that process was all about humbling myself nonstop. Doesn't matter how many goals I gave up, I could have gave up five. Well, that's five opportunities where I could have learned something and gotten better. I could have gave up two. Mm-hmm. Well, there were still two goals that went in. Is there anything I could have done to stop those? And so much of that with goalie is also about learning the mindset to process. There are things you can't control. Like, hey, a backdoor play is not your job. If that goal goes in, you can do the splits and you maybe will stop it. But then is Uh the defense going to clean up the rebound? Who knows? And if they don't, is that still on you as the goalie? So you have to teach yourself how to process those failures in a productive fashion. Because if you don't, you'll quit. You will quit really Mm -hmm. fast. And I think the one thing I do feel bad about is I never took the fitness part of it seriously enough. And I think I could have been much Mm. better at it, again, better at it earlier in my life if I had taken the fitness part of it seriously. 
And now that I am much more fit and I eat better and do things more responsibly, I play better. Like as a skater, I'm tremendously better. I score goals almost every skate now. And before it used to be like every six or seven skates, I'd get like one. Now I'll score two or three in most open hockeys usually. And it's number one, I have a really good hard shot. But number two, I just learned that if I work really hard and I go to the net, I will get goals. It, it's the, the mm-hmm. last one I've got at the last skate, garbage goal. Standing in front of the net, rebound, tapped it in around the goalie. It was a trash goal, mm-hmm. but I got it because I learned. A goal is a goal. A goal is a goal, exactly. So it's yeah. it, so much of it has been making that connection of the physical fitness has made a huge difference. Now, you're fortunate. You've always been in really good shape as long as I've known you. Like I'm sure there's degrees of that even in your own experience, but – as a whole, you've always been in pretty good physical shape, and I'm sure that that's one of the reasons why you have improved as much as you have. And it's been interesting because we haven't skated together on a super regular basis, and I've seen the development and growth in your game hugely. You have improved just astronomically from the time we first met and first played a skate together to where you are now. I mean, it's it's impressive how much you have well, developed. You you don't when you don't you, see it, when you but suck I have. that bad. When you suck that bad, you have a lot of room to move up, right? Oh, you do. Like, yeah, you start sure. you start at the bottom. Bottom, you've got a lot of improvement to make. So, well, we all look um, like Bambi yeah. when we first start, right? That's that, let's be honest. That when you start out, your feet are doing this and they're flipping all over the uh-huh. place, and you know you can't do yeah. a crossover, and your shot is weak and inaccurate, and you can't make mm-hmm. a pass, and you don't even know what a saucer pass is, and eventually, as you play more more and you do more stuff you learn to to get better at this stuff and i i like that's that's the coolest thing but i've enjoyed watching people that i know get better like i've enjoyed yeah. seeing you improve it's been cool like it's fun to i if we played more together more regularly i probably would have noticed it less but i i, I mean even so there are people that i've played with like through jms where you know i've played 653 games with them uh and i actually did the math i sat down and did the math and i've collectively since i started playing at 19 i've skated probably 1500 skates maybe more yeah so it's uh, you, you don't want to do the math on the money no 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 no, no I, I don't I've ever do that. that no 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 way not doing that but but if we're talking about just sheer numbers i've skated well yeah. over 1500 times and i think about that and i go man i should be better than that better than i am now after 1500 skates but in the same token you know it's still the the journey and the enjoyable watching other people improve. And there are some guys that I've watched just come leaps and bounds. I haven't watched mm-hmm. a lot of goalies develop. Um, that's kind of unfortunate. I would really like to watch goalies develop. Most of the goalies I've seen are pretty static. The majority of them don't seem to have improved. Um, and that's, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but it's just, it is what it is. But from a skater perspective, there's a lot of people I've skated with at JMS 200, 300 times, and I've seen the development and growth in their games and it's cool. It's really fun to watch yeah. because you know that, hey, you must be getting better too because it's been a lot of time. And actually, I talked to a JMS captain who I hadn't skated skated out with as a you know forward or defenseman in, I don't know, four years. And he was like blown away at how much better I am now than I was four years ago. And we played on an AHA team together probably six or seven years ago. And he's like, oh, you're much better now. You're faster and you make better plays and your passes are better and your shots are better. And I go, oh, cool. Well, I'm glad it's not just me telling myself I'm getting better. <laughs> it's yeah. good to know that I am actually getting better. But my wife says so too. And she comes and watches me too. So, but it's, I just, again, it's, it, I can't under, I can't underestimate the value of how fun it is to do it. You know, just 
mm-hmm. get out there and play. And there's another one person in our Facebook groups, uh, Tommy Markham, who plays. And he goes and plays outdoors mm. under a really cool covered place and whatnot. Um, he's a shop owner and a technician, and he does. Yeah, okay. he goes out and plays outdoors in Upper New York, and uh, takes cool pictures and whatever. And I'm always just excited to see that, and I think it's great. Nice. I haven't had a chance to play on that uh, St. Louis Park outdoor one yet. The ROC Recreation Outdoor. Yeah, thing. I did it a couple times. How was it's it? Been a few years. Good, bad. It, the ice, the ice sucked. It was oh, a really? cool atmosphere, but the ice really sucked. It. Um, I mean, it was like playing hockey, uh, you know, outdoor ice at, at an outdoor <laughs> rink. You know, it's, that's what it is. But the the atmosphere is cool, and playing outside is cool. Um, so yeah, I had a goalie tell well, me. Well, we're, we're gonna have to. <laughs> yeah, of yeah. Fog. I he said it was foggy. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll have to play a game together at some point or another. You'll have to let me know when you do a JMS skate. We'll try to hook up there, but. Um, we just did over two hours, so <laughs> I told you I can talk forever. Whoops, that's <laughs> what I do. Well, uh, thanks for spending the time with me this morning. I appreciate it. It was great, very much enjoyable. Okay, that's going to do it for today's episode. Another big thank you to Hawkin for joining me on the show today. Enjoyed that talk. Hopefully, you did as well. Um, And I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the show and all the feedback I've been getting. Always appreciate that. With that all out of the way, let's all get out there, start fixing the world one car at a time.